Good morning, everybody. Uh, you had to choose between us and the Pope, so uh, we're really glad you're with us. Uh, you can catch the Pope later on in the news. Um, today's discussion is uh, charting NATO's future. as made possible, possible in part through our long-standing partnership with the Norwegian Ministry of Defense. And it comes at an unprecedented moment of uh, threats, in our view, to Europe from the east, from the south, internally, centrifugally, and a moment uh, that NATO is preparing for its 2016 Warsaw Summit, now less than a year away. Um, just picking up the news before coming here, uh, you know, when we first started uh, our relationship uh, with the Ministry of Defense, we really couldn't predict many of the things that are coming at us in Ukraine and Syria, elsewhere, the migrant crisis. Uh, and it just shows the importance not only of our relationship and the issues that we can take on and work on that are so crucial, but the overall alliance relationship and, and the need for NATO and the alliance to be able to adjust uh, to a new situation. Frank Kramer and others later on today are going to talk about a new report that's just come out uh, that Frank and, and Hans Benedijk and others wrote, taking a look at how NATO has to be a generator of stability, stability generation. So I think uh, there's a lot of instability that needs to be taken care of. Just today, you see a report that, uh, first of all, President Obama has decided to meet with President Putin of Russia in New York next week on the fringes of UNGA, if it can be arranged. And Vladimir Putin says he's preparing unilateral airstrikes against ISIS if the U.S. rejects his proposal to do it together and to in a parallel, but, and, and he wants a parallel track of joint military action accompanied by political transition away from Assad. Uh, it's a long way from a joint NATO-Russia uh, action in Syria, uh, but it's interesting that uh, even uh, a few days ago, it would have been considered foolhardy to even put anything like that on the agenda. Dominating the headlines in recent weeks is the influx of refugees in Europe. German ambassador of the U.S., Peter Witte, a good friend of the Atlantic Council, uh, warned last week the refugee situation is a crisis of historic proportions. Not since World War II have we seen such a large wave of migration on the European continent. And you see, of course, in the news uh, the disunity uh, within Europe, particularly from some of its uh, uh, newest members, about how to handle the crisis. Um, it seems to affect just economic, political, and social unity, so what does NATO have to do with that? Uh, but uh, it really does get at some of the transatlantic va values that have ensured so much of our security and stability over the last 60 years. NATO may not be best positioned to solve this migrant crisis, but it certainly impacts the alliance's ability uh, to operate and underscores the links of our own security and our own situation with the situation in the Middle East. If it could be denied before, which I don't think it could have been, it certainly can't be now. Uh, NATO's unity and operational readiness is particularly important now because although fighting in eastern Ukraine has temporarily ebbed, the crisis continues to deepen distrust, military tensions, and discord between the transatlantic community and Russia, even as this new situation unfolds in Syria. These tensions begin to manifest in a military buildup in another area, the high north, the Arctic. Massive Russian military exercises are taking place near the Baltic region, countless air and sea excursions on NATO's borders. These tensions add a new and complicated element to the ongoing campaign against ISIS, especially 
as Russia ramps up its military presence in Syria, uh, the first uh, presence of combat aircraft, Russian combat aircraft. When the Atlantic Council began its, uh, uh, its work with the Norwegian Ministry of Defense in early 2013, this stage of its work, as I said earlier, uh, few could have predicted any of these specific threats. Though we did take a look at the return of geopolitical competition, we have traditionally taken a look at uh, an era of volatility where we need resilience, nimbleness, uh, dynamism uh, that sometimes escapes uh, NATO. The, this new environment underscores how important the alliance remains in the post-Cold War world and how crucial it is that we renew our partnership for new challenges. Today we've got a stellar uh, lineup of leading experts from across North America uh, and Europe to explore these and other issues and possible policy solutions. Looking at the strategy, trying to come out with the policy. Specifically, I'm uh, delighted that uh, our keynote um, um, uh, address and then panel later on uh, this morning will involve Norwegian Minister of Defense Ina Eriksson Sereda. Uh, and, uh, and she'll be introduced uh, by the chairman, the former chairman of the Atlantic Council, former Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel. Uh, I'll introduce them both later, so I won't say much here, uh, but uh, it's great to have our chairman back, and it's terrific to have Minister Sereda here, uh, and the two have, have worked very constructively together during his time as the Secretary of Defense, so I, I look forward also in the Q&A session where they together will, uh, will answer questions. Uh, thanks again for being here today. For those who are following online, I encourage you to tweet along with us, also here in the room. Feel free to tweet using the hashtag uh, FutureNATO, so hashtag FutureNATO. We have a great deal to cover, so uh, I, I won't say anything more now. Please uh, join me in uh, getting our first panel, Nina, off to, off to a good start. Thank you very much, Fred, and, and thanks to the Atlantic Council for hosting this event. My name is Nora Bensahel. I'm a distinguished scholar in residence at the School of International Service at American University, uh, and also a non-resident senior fellow here in the Scowcroft Center. Um, it's my great pleasure to moderate the first panel this morning on NATO's new threat horizon. Uh, and before I introduce the fellow panelists, I thought I'd offer just a couple of framing remarks to put their, uh, you know, the wonderful ideas of, of these people who have, you know, such long history working on these issues, um, to put it into a little bit of context. If we had had this conference two years ago, or we, you know, we had met behind closed doors and talked about what the most you know, vital issues facing the alliance would be, um, most of the discussion would have focused on the need to maintain alliance cohesion as the war in Afghanistan drew down. Um, and there were ever-increasing discussions about the importance of Article 5 and using Article 5 to reinvigorate the alliance, focusing on uh, homeland defense across the alliance, things like missile defense and other things, which are certainly still part, uh, very much part of the discussion today. Um, but the past couple of years has seen such a change in uh, the types of issues and threats facing the alliance that that discussion really has been subsumed in a lot of ways. Um, we're not talking about Article 5 in quite the same way anymore. Instead, we're talking about threats to the alliance from outside, from a wide arc of instability throughout the world, um, but particularly in the, you know, the area that people talk about as the arc of crisis, going from the Middle East to North Africa, and now uh, for the past 18 months and beyond, looking at Russia as well, which was something the alliance had spent very little time doing. Uh, as a whole in our individual uh, capitals as well in a very long time. 
Um, this is still about Article 5 in a very fundamental way, of course, because ultimately NATO exists to protect the security of its members, uh, and these threats are posing both uh, direct and indirect threats to NATO members. Even if you look at the refugee crisis, as Fred mentioned, there is clearly an Article 5 dimension of that uh, when you're talking about the flow of people into uh, Europe. That may be the EU's responsibility. That's a Schengen issue, obviously. Um, but when it's tough to tell who's flowing into your borders, you also have a security challenge that goes along with that. So the Article 5 implications are still very, very relevant, but it looks very different than it did a couple of years ago. And that's what our panel here today is to talk about. Uh, the threats facing the alliance and some of the challenges in the alliance's response to those threats. Um, I would note that there are um, increasing divisions among the allies. There are always divisions among the allies, right? Going back to the history of the alliance, we could have, you know, from the very moment of founding, we could have talked about the different ways in which uh, different things were pulling the allies apart. Um, but I think when we start talking about the responses to this new threat environment, it's important to understand what those divisions are and, and what their dynamics are. Um, and I think that there are three different ways in which the alliance is being pulled and stretched, and I hope our, our panelists will, will talk about uh, some of these during the course of the discussion. The first is that there's a growing division uh, about what crises to deal with between the uh, alliances east and the alliances south. And I'm particularly talking about the European members now, but both the North American allies, of course, are facing the same challenge in terms of what sets of issues do you give priority to. Um, and that's really a, a tension between the rise of Russia, the resurgence of Russia, Russia's aggressive behavior um, in Ukraine, what that means for the broader uh, Eastern part of the alliance, certainly very direct Article 5 considerations for some of the newer alliance members, um, feeling that their uh, interests are directly threatened. Um, and some of the southern members of the alliance who are on the front lines of that refugee crisis, who are dealing with the consequences of the instability um, from North Africa, from the uh, you know, growing base of, of terrorism in North Africa, the instability in Libya, and so on, that are directly affected by those. Um, that's, a, that's two fronts facing NATO in a whole lot of ways, and there's a real tension between how much priority do you give to both, how do you uh, keep the alliance focused, how do you ensure that the eastern members of the alliance are uh, focused on, uh, you know, from an alliance perspective, on the southern threats rather than just their own, and for the allies in the south that they are just as concerned uh, with the threats coming from the east. Um, the second is that there's a tension uh, that we haven't seen in a while between land operations and sea operations in the alliance. Um, Magnus, I'm sure, will talk about this. He's written a great uh, Atlantic Council paper on uh, NATO's maritime strategy and where it needs to go. Um, but, you know, especially over the past decade and a half with the war in Afghanistan, maritime strategy was important, and NATO has done some maritime operations, but certainly not the focus of the alliance, hasn't been the focus of the alliance in a long time. Um, and now there are real serious threats at sea. Again, as Fred mentioned in his opening comments, you see that uh, in the Arctic area, you see that affecting uh, the northern members of the allies in Russian behavior, um, but there also continues to be uh, threats coming from the south and uh, around the Horn of Africa as well on the maritime side. And, and again, that's a tension that NATO hasn't really had to think about in a long time because land operations were really the focus of what the alliance uh, was, was doing on a day-to-day -day uh, day -day basis. 
And then third and finally, this is an oldie but goodie. It's playing out in different ways. There's a tension between the European members of the alliance and the uh, North American and particularly uh, the North American allies and particularly, of course, the United States. Um, this trend has been underway for a long time, but we're seeing some of the consequences hit now in some ways. Um, the US defense budget is shrinking. Um, the consequences of that for readiness on US forces are becoming ever more significant as a result of the uh, uh, budget cuts. Um, that means that the number of U.S. forces that are available around the world is going down. Um, you add to that the fact that um, the U.S. has withdrawn most of its forces from Europe, frankly, from overseas. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Army is largely stationed at home now for the first time since World War II, uh, with only two brigades stationed overseas. Um, so that has real consequences for the capabilities that are available uh, in Europe. And of course, the locus of U.S. interests, not just in the security sense, but in the broadest sense, are shifting to the Asia-Pacific, and that has implications for where U.S. security policy is focused. Um, so these are, again, that one is perennial, but you know, manifesting itself in new ways combined with a couple of other divisions <coughs> and tensions within the alliance that we haven't seen for, for a long time. So the key question is how NATO can, can address all these and what initiatives does NATO need to take, what things need to be going on within the alliance itself, in the discussion among the NATO capitals, um, what needs to be done in the next year and what initiatives need to be in place leading up to the Warsaw Summit in order to address some of these so that you know, NATO can continue to be a strong and vibrant organization. Those are tough questions, but fortunately we have three great panelists here to help us answer them, and I'll, I'll now introduce them in turn. We're going to uh, go in reverse alphabetical order, so starting to uh, my left, your right, coming this well. We'll start with uh, Fabrice Potier, who's the Director of Policy Planning in the Office of the Secretary General at NATO. His responsibilities there include reviewing current and future strategic uh, strategic issues and developing new policy initiatives within the alliance, so on the front lines of dealing with some of these issues that I've mentioned, um, and also advising the Secretary General directly. In the past, he's been the director of Carnegie Europe and has, was the head of policy analysis and co-founder of the International Council on Security and Development. Next, we'll hear from Magnus Nordenman, who is a familiar face to those of you who attend uh, events at the Atlantic Council frequently. He's the deputy director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security here at the Atlantic Council. Um, he works on a wide range of issues on transatlantic security and also on broader defense and security issues, um, working with the U.S. government, with industry, with key allies and partners, so a very comprehensive look at, at these subjects. Um, he's also uh, talked a lot and, and written a lot on Nordic-Baltic relations and, as I mentioned before, maritime strategy, so we'll have particular insights, I think, in, in that area as well. Um, and then uh, to my immediate left, uh, Dan Feta, who's the Vice President um, of Global Security Policy for Europe and the Americas at Lockheed Martin. Before that, uh, he was the Vice President of the Cohen Group and has served in the past as a non-resident transatlantic fellow for the German Marshall Fund, as well as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy. <coughs> He's been a key advisor to uh, Secretaries of Defense Rumsfeld and Gates, and uh, before that was the policy director on the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House's Republican <coughs> Policy Committees. So without further ado, Fabrice, we'll start with you for your comments on this very complicated envi threat environment facing the Alliance. Thank you very much, Nora, and it's great to be here. Uh, congratulations to the Atlantic Council. I think you guys are the only one who can squeeze NATO between the Pope and the Chinese president. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very impressive. Um, 
I was asked to talk about the, the threats environment, but uh, I would just say a few words on that, but I think I would try to go more into what those threats mean in terms of political strategic dilemmas uh, for the alliance. <coughs> uh, of course, I think I don't need to, ex to describe to, uh, at length what, what kind of threats. For the first time, indeed, uh, the alliance faces two front lines, uh, one in the east and one in the south. And in both cases, uh, these are structural threats uh, and these are long-term threats and also hybrid in how they express themselves. So you see on the east a state actor, Russia, that employs non-state actors' tactics uh, in Ukraine and elsewhere. And you see in the south non-state actor like Daesh uh, that actually behaves in some, in some respect like a state actor and even holds more weaponry than many other regional states um, in Iraq and, and Syria. So indeed, this is a, a pretty multi-directional, uh, complex picture. And, and I think on that, the allies, uh, both on the European and the American side, agree that we are facing this kind of 360-degree uh, threat environment, and we need to adapt. Uh, now, Nora was right in saying the question is to what uh, extent should we prioritize on the east versus the south, and even within the east, what should be the mode of of action. Um, but I think this is kind of, in a way, the very exciting period we're in at NATO because this is the rewriting of the strategic bargain. Uh, behind any alliance, there has to be a strategic bargain about who does what and what matters. And I think we are seeing that since Wales. The Wales summit was really a reaction summit to a big cri a double crisis, Mosul and, and Crimea. Uh, and I think the Warsaw summit will be the kind of longer term uh, action taking on, on what, what that means. Um, but le let, me, let me point to you uh, three uh, dilemmas that this threat environment, I think, create for the alliance and for all of us. <clears throat> Number one dilemma, uh, the imperative to restore stability in Europe whilst managing competition with Russia. This is really the, the, the kind of balance that we're trying to define. And it will take several ingredients. Number one ingredient we need, uh, actually it's a big ingredient, it's called full spectrum deterrence. Uh, somehow we need to relearn and restore a kind of fuller uh, deterrence in, on the European uh, continent, which for many years, for actually many decades, we had lowered because we were reaching stability through cooperation and partnership rather than through deterrence. So we need to, uh, I would say, raise our game, and this is what the Readiness Action Plan has been doing uh, with putting the NATO forces on a higher level of readiness, but there's much more that needs to be done. And by full spectrum uh, deterrence, I mean we need to be able to respond to both conventional challenges as well as non-conventional uh, challenges. We, mean we need to be able to control escalation vertically as well as horizontally. Uh, so we need to get much better at obviously projecting forces in case of, uh, at reinforcing our allies. But so that's the, the notion of also having tripwires. Deterrence should not ju just stop at the concept of tripwires. I think it needs to go beyond, because if you look at what President Putin is doing, it's actually more than just conventional forces. So we need to be able to deal with the whole range. And that involves cyber, for example, even though cyber has different law of deterrence in a way, but it should be part of the panoplia. Uh, and it should be also about responding to the Russian anti-access area denial challenges that we see forming in the Barents, Baltic, and Black Seas. 
Um, so I think this is really where we should be heading, and this is where the discussion is now at, the, at NATO. And uh, the bet is that by Warsaw, we will have, I would say, the this architecture of this full-spectrum deterrence. Uh, second important ingredient uh, that cannot be uh, cannot be neglected is we need to find new ways of managing crisis and miscalculations with with Russia. Uh, and, and in a way, the aim should be to reach some kind of predictable coexistence. The problem with that is that it's not in Russia's interest to be predictable. Uh, unpredictability is one of its, I would say, uh, advantages over the fact that we have superiority in, co in the conventional and non-conventional field. Uh, but my bet is that if we reach a high level enough of deterrence, I think somehow uh, Russia will see an interest in somehow coming uh, and agreeing on some kind of new modus operandi. It will not be probably based on what we were hoping for over the last 20 years. That means a partnership where somehow Russia will join the broader European family. So it's more about coexistence. Uh, but I think it's important to uh, uh, develop new mechanisms to avoid miscalculations and, and be able to redefine some kind of stability in Europe. Third important ingredient that should not be neglected, and I think that will also be part of the conversation towards Warsaw, <laughs> is uh, how do we support the places in between, the Eastern European partners uh, that uh, are clearly in the middle of this contest? Um, and how do we support Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova, and others to make sure that it's not about whether they join the alliance or not at this stage. It's about whether they are sovereign enough or not, and how to make them as resilient and as strong as possible with their own choices. Uh, and I think this will be also part of, of the, the conversation. The second dilemma that we are facing, and that has to do more with the South, is how do we contain the threats coming from the Middle East without letting further fragmentation of this Middle East? How does basically containment not mean uh, passivity? Um, and, and, and how also activity should not accelerate the fragmentation and the crisis in the region? First, I think we need to be a bit sharper about how we look at the threats environment in the, in the wider Middle East. Uh, there is obviously a lot of focus on terrorism and terrorist groups, and rightly so. But terrorism cannot be isolated from the other, I would say, sides of the coin of, of the threat picture in the Middle East, which are weak states, but also competing strong states. So basically, you have to look at the Middle East and the scene there along these three, um, the, these three elements to really understand what is at stake. Uh, here, I think what we need to develop is a kind of mix between a more, uh, I would say, uh, active defense posture uh, that means to be able to defend our allies uh, and their territorial integrity. I think Turkey is, the, for example, a very compelling example that the Middle East is not just about crisis management. It's also about collective defense. Uh, so we need to, to think the Middle East also in terms of collective defense of our allies. Uh, we also need to think in terms of what does counterterrorism done by 
uh, a, a collective alliance like NATO mean? Uh, and where could it be helpful to uh, conduct some counterterrorism uh, operations? And we also need the third element to develop, to be much more active in supporting and assisting local partners and regional organizations. Here we see, for example, in Wales, we agree on what we call the Defense Capacity Building Initiative, which is basically training and assist, which is what we have been doing in Iraq and, and currently in Afghanistan. But it's also about resources, and we're still lacking the resources to make that uh, really work. Uh, but but uh, and interestingly, I think uh, for me the best tech on what to do from a security point of view, including NATO, in the wider Middle East is, was done by the Atlantic Council, and I'm not saying that because they pay my plane ticket, um, <laughs> uh, by, by Barry and his team, uh, in trying to find that kind of composite strategy, which is not passivity, but not over-activism either, which we have seen in the past, the previous decade has not really uh, produced positive results. Uh, let me finish on the third dilemma, which in a way covers the two previous dilemma, which is we need to do the two above. That means tackle the security issues in the, in the wider Middle East, deal and restore stability in Europe with smaller forces and many other crises on the agenda, uh, from the refugee to here mostly the, the competition with China to, so, and the Euro crisis. So you have to, to, to see that we have also shrinking resources, even if we will see in the next 10 years increase investment. I think the reality, especially in the US, will be that we have smaller forces than what we have had 10 years ago. Uh, and we have to deal with that reality. Uh, and and, and that, that brings me to my final points, which is I think we need somehow a new mindset about how we think security and how we think defense. Um, first, uh, we need to focus much more investment in defense on those critical capabilities that allow us to do as many things as possible. Airlift, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, air defense, cyber. Uh, cyber is needed both in collective defense but also in crisis management <coughs> operation. Uh, so we need to equip ourselves with this, I would say, fundamental building blocks of any uh, a military response to, to security threats. Uh, second, we need to have much more flexible structures, uh, especially, for example, NATO, the NATO command structure, which are what they are, and they need to be able to be much more adaptable, much more shifting their resources and their priorities as the picture also shifts. Um, third point, and this is important, and I know that this is dear to Hans Minendijk, and I very much liked his latest paper, I think we need to also look at deterrence and strengths in terms of our own internal strengths. And I think resilience should become also the new name of the game. Uh, resilience of our partners, because the more vulnerable they are, they are the, more, the stronger our, our adversaries will be. Uh, with the, for example, Ukraine is a compelling case. Um, and but also resilience of our own allies. I think the more resilient the Baltic states and Central European states are, that means the quicker they can recover from any pressure or any attack, I think the more the stronger and the more deterring they are. So resilience has to be a new name of the defense security nexus. Uh, here the challenge is that resilience is not the property of a single organization. It's of course first owned by the nation, but the nations alone cannot do it. Uh, they need uh, the European Union, they need NATO to an extent. So we need to find a new, I would say, 
entente uh, between both the nations, the European Union and NATO. And this is what, for example, especially the United States has been very active in trying to push a bit the lines about how we cooperate on this resilience. Um, third third uh, point is I think we need to think a bit more about keeping the edge. I know that the US, the previous uh, defense secretary launched this, uh, I think it's the third offset strategy, which is a bit obscure for us Europeans, but then once you read the, the, the fine print, you, you get it. Um, and I think we need to replicate that in Europe. That means we need to make sure we don't lose our technological superiority. Uh, this is what is being attempted in the European Union effort on defense, but I think NATO should have a role. Uh, and to see how NATO can somehow help the, bring the Europeans so that the Europeans and the US are not kind of having a huge technological gap, which in 10, 15 years could become a big political gap. So I think we need to also keep the edge. And finally, um, because we are not just a military alliance, we are also a political alliance, I think we should see now kind of overall strategy and how to also uh, minimize our investment or make our investment where it really matters. Uh, also, the, the, the fact that political investment can pay off from a military security point of view. And let me give you the example of the Baltic region, where uh, this is a new re contested region, uh, one where we have very important allies. All the allies are important, but also very important partners. And here, I think this is obviously a conversation that uh, the Swedes and the Finns have domestically, and this is not something that uh, we should be intervening in this internal debate. But I think just thinking about down the line, if Sweden and Finland were to join the alliance at some point, this will have, I, I would say, a huge stabilization effect in the Baltic. Uh, see, and I think we'll, we'll create really uh, uh, that kind of more stable deterrence uh, that we should be seeking with Russia. So we should not just think military in terms of investment in capabilities and in things, but also in political strategy. Thank you very much. Magnus. Thank you, Noor. Um, um, Fabrice, that, that was excellent. I, mm -hmm. I, I, thought, I thought that was great. Um, and I think I will pick up on some of the themes that, uh, that you presented. Um, but I was going to use my time to, to sort of do a bit of a deep dive in, in, in one aspect of this. And, and this goes back to mindset and, and, and changing the alliance mindset, which, which has been very, very ground-centric for the last two decades or so, as, as, uh, as Nora mentioned. Um, so I actually want to touch on the, on the maritime domain uh, in, and uh, in and around Europe and globally, and actually how central it is to the, to the new uh, uh, climate of global competition and how it, how it is central to, uh, to NATO's future and collective defense and deterrence in, in Europe. Uh, but also to, to crisis management and, and cooperative security. Um, um, so if you take a broader view at Transatlantic Security, I think you will quickly find that, that the maritime spaces are certainly crucial to security and, and prosperity for, for all Alliance members, but they are also actually increasingly contested. Um, if, if you start placing the red dots where we have had incursions and provocations and, and shows of force, um, I think you will quickly find that, that a lot of that has actually happened in the maritime spaces um, um, around, around NATO's flanks. Uh, and, and, and certainly if you, uh, if you include the above the surface, um, you, you, will, you will see a pretty strong pattern. So that certainly includes the, the Baltic Sea region, the, the Black Sea region. Um, and I would also place the high north there, which is obviously a, a profoundly maritime maritime region where we, where, we, where we do see heightened Russian military activity um, uh, and, and a sustained uh, Russian military, military buildup. Um, and if you think about it, this is actually not that surprising. Uh, the maritime domain is, is inherently fluid. 
which gives Russia the ability to uh, to test responses, fill out red lines, and, uh, and and perhaps even intimidate NATO members and partners um, in ways that you simply can't do on dry land uh, without it escalating very very quickly into situations that that, that none of us wants. So I think the, the key takeaway here is that if if we do believe um, that this is a long-term contest and, and, and climate change uh, uh, for European security, then I think, uh, then I think the, the maritime domain will remain very much uh, in focus for that, for that continued contest between, between NATO, NATO and Russia. Um, but certainly NATO's maritime challenges go, go well beyond the, the eastern challenge. You know, certainly we have already touched a couple of times this morning uh, about the migrant crisis and, and, and uh, crumbling order in the Middle East, which, which certainly has important maritime maritime components as well, even though NATO may not necessarily be in the lead for, uh, for, for some of those responses. Um, but I would also point out that actually emerging powers such as China are now operating in, uh, in waters much closer to Europe uh, or in waters that are of interest to Europe. So China condu uh, conducted a, a pretty ambitious non-combatant uh, uh, non evacuation out of Libya in, in 2011. Uh, this summer, there was a uh, joint Chinese-Russian naval exercise in the Mediterranean uh, that actually saw the, uh, the, chi uh, the Chinese warships actually also go into the, uh, to the Black Sea to, uh, to link up with the Russian Navy before the exercises um, began. So, um, so you do see emerging powers uh, uh, now sharing space in maritime domains that are, uh, that are important to NATO. Doesn't necessarily mean that we will see conflict, but it, but it does mean that the maritime domain is, is more congested um, in ways that, uh, that perhaps before has been the, uh, the purview of, of the US Navy and, and its NATO, um, NATO allies. Um, and finally, on, um, on the challenges, um, let's not forget about the maritime domain as a, as a conduit for, uh, uh, for, for future uh, possible uh, NATO crisis management operations, in the sense that, that they, um, they do provide access for NATO forces and the ability of NATO to, to sustain operations. So, so certainly, uh, OUP in Libya, the air war over Kosovo, and even operations in Afghanistan very much relied on the maritime domain for support for, for strikes, for ISR, for supply and, and so on and so forth. And, and actually, if you do the numbers of, of all the NATO operations over the last 20 years, uh, about half have actually either been maritime operations or had important maritime components. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of an underreported story and an under, underreported aspect, uh, aspect of all this. But I should note that um, there really hasn't been much of a strategy behind it, that it, it, it's, been a, it's been a context where NATO has been reactive to, uh, to an emerging crisis or an emerging requirement to act. Uh, and then that has had a that has had a maritime component to it. Um, so it, it is obviously time to start thinking strategically about this, rather than just reacting to the uh, um, to the environment. So um, while we see Russia actually underway with a pretty substantial maritime uh, uh, maritime buildup um, and uh, and emerging powers expressing their new ambitions through naval means. At the same time, you have um, across NATO members, um, naval forces arguably were th that have taken the largest hit in terms of defense austerity, but we have seen real loss in, in force structure and, uh, and capabilities. Um, uh, and it certainly goes across the lines, but, but just a few examples. Um, as, you, as you already know, the UK got rid of its maritime patrol aircraft in 2010. Uh, they, may, they may be back soon, uh, or, or so at least we hope. Uh, the Royal Navy is now down to 19 frigates and destroyers, uh, making the Royal Navy the, the smallest been in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a very, very long time. Um, the Dutch have cut their fleet of frigates and replaced them with ocean patrol vessels that are more suited to sort of softer maritime security um, uh, challenges, if you will. 
Um, and, the, and the maritime operations that the alliance have undertaken have been towards the softer end uh, or, or, or lower end of the spectrum of you will. So counterterrorism, counterpiracy, and, and humanitarian escorts. Um, and that has obviously influenced the mindset and the exercises and the training um, uh, that goes with that. Um, and finally, NATO actually brought out a, uh, an alliance maritime strategy in 2011, which at heart is actually a pretty good document. It's, it's short and to the point and establishes NATO interests and, and what NATO needs to do. Um, however, it sort of got lost in a shuffle uh, after it was released, unfortunately. Maybe that has something to do with the Libya operation kicking off, and that quickly became the, uh, became the, the focal point for the alliance. Uh, but, but there is this strategy that, that has not been operationalized and not, not paid attention to um, over, the last, over the last five years. So in short, what does NATO need to do to, um, uh, to be able to better, better compete and be, and be present and be credible? Um, in the maritime domain. I have, I have a few ideas, and I think this is just sort of the start of the conversation, and, and happy to pick, pick some of these up. Um, again, going back to NATO needs to start recalibrating its mindset, certainly in, in a broader fashion, but also as it, as it pertains to the, um, uh, to the maritime domain. And again, I think we're, we're still experiencing, experiencing some of the hangover from Afghanistan, which understandably was, was a very long cost and, and costly operation, both, both, both in blood and treasure. Um, and obviously, none of this means that we don't need credible uh, uh, air and ground forces. Again, I'm not talking about shifting all of it, but, but a, new, a new balance between the, between the uh, priorities. Um, it is probably time to at least take a new serious look at the uh, Alliance Maritime Strategy, uh, and is it fit for fight? Uh, again, at heart, it's a pretty good document, but does it need to be, does it need to be updated uh, given, the new, given the new security, uh, security circumstances in, in Europe and beyond? Um, NATO needs to focus on, on, uh, on the high-end skills and capabilities that come with maritime warfighting. So we're talking anti-submarine warfare, surface warfare, mine warfare, um, um, and so forth. And th these are skills and capabilities that haven't really been exercised or resourced much um, over the last 10 or 15 years. So it's something that the Alliance needs to start thinking about. Again, uh, there certainly have been some exercises that are driving towards this way, uh, um, but we, we need to increase the focus. Um, on that, and then um, I think it's um, it's time to start taking a really serious look at pooling and sharing in the maritime domain. Uh, there are there are um, there are certain capabilities that um, um, are relevant to all allies, such as maritime patrol aircraft. Um, they are uh, they are very relevant to the high north. They're very relevant to the to the Baltic Sea, uh, but certainly also very relevant to, uh, to the Southern Challenge. Uh, and the the European maritime patrol aircraft fleet is is getting uh, very old uh, uh, and very thin. Uh, but the replacements are very, very expensive. Um, so how, how, can, um, how can we regain a maritime patrol capability uh, uh, at, a, at a cheaper price? Um, and then finally, strategic domain awareness, which is one of those old, old go-tos uh, go for, for, the, for the NATO debate. And, and when I mean domain awareness, I, on, I don't only mean it in the, in the technical sense of the, um, um, of the word, in the sense of radars and sharing pictures and so on and so forth. Um, but also strategic, and what, what, is actually, what are actually dynamics in, in some of these maritime spaces? So in the, uh, in the high north, in the Baltic Sea, in the, in the Black Sea, um, um, and, and sharing those uh, impressions and, and insights with a, uh, uh, within a broader alliance context so you, you get a more cohesive alliance understanding of what is actually going on in the, uh, in the maritime domains in terms of operations and signals and, and, uh, and so forth. Um, so I have obviously outlined a number of challenges and, and, and shortcomings here. Um, but I actually do see it as, a, uh, as an opportunity for the alliance. Um, I do think that the alliance at heart is a maritime alliance. Uh, after all, an ocean is part of the, uh, uh, is part of the name. Uh, so I do think this is an opportunity to, to recapture that spirit for, for NATO, and, which will be crucial for the, 
for the success of the alliance in, in the 21st century. Um, and, and finally, as, as, uh, as Nora mentioned, we, we, have, we have recently released a report on, on NATO in the maritime domain. It's available for pickup outside. Uh, and some of the issues that, that I covered, we, we, we certainly hope to continue working on here at the Atlantic Council moving forward. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Dan? Well, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here, uh, seeing so many friends and colleagues, and I've enjoyed both of your comments thus far. Um, for those that have heard me speak before, I, I tend to be a little provocative, and so I intend to do that as well, just to spice it up for dialogue and discussion. Um, also, I was, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, I participated in a two-day uh, seminar session, there was about 40 of us, looking specifically at this, uh, at the Russia threat. And so I was asked today to speak about, uh, among other things, give a little bit of focus on Russia, uh, A2AD, so anti-access and aerial denial. Uh, what it means, how did we get here, what do you do about it? Um, and so some of what you're going to hear today came out uh, of that two-day uh, session where I walked away a little bit frustrated um, as to where I think we are and how we got here. So I, I want to walk folks uh, through that a little bit. Um, so Fabrice did a good job uh, in laying out a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done, and I don't disagree with it. I think, though, part of the challenge is going to be generating the leadership. Yes, generating the, the, the cash is going to be uh, a big challenge, but you've got to generate the leadership first. And so that will also be another part of uh, this discussion. So again, the, the topic for this panel is NATO's new threat horizon. And um, in many ways, NATO's new threats are a lot of NATO's old threats. Uh, you have, uh, you have uh, foreign enemies or actors trying uh, or potentially threatening sovereignty. You have, uh, you have migration flows, you have uh, separatists, you have this lack of focus uh, on, on some of these national security issues and more of a focus on domestic. Now, all that said, there are new threats, which uh, Fabrice laid out, asymmetric, uh, uh, declining uh, economies in some places, uh, nationalist elements. So there, there's a lot that's going on. Uh, but it's interesting, as, as I step back, and I've been giving a brief on and off for about the past five or six years about transatlantic security trends um, and what's comprised them. Um, when I, I went back to look at that brief, and over the past five years, uh, some of you may have heard this before, I described those trends as uh, when you look at, really it's the period from about 2003 to 2013, beginning of 14, as comprising uh, five factors. I call them the five Ds. Uh, if you look at that, you see uh, transatlantic security defense trends were, um, were, uh, were affected by increasing public debt, so that made freedom of, of what you wanted to do less, uh, less of an option. Uh, increasing demographics in terms of an aging population and the corresponding uh, relationship to an unwillingness to take risk. So when you see a lot of the political battles and fights uh, from the uh, 05 to 08 period about what to do in Afghanistan, you see an increased number of deployments. Uh, really, you can even go back further to around Bosnia, but you could even say Kosovo if you wanted just to cut it a little closer. But an increasing number of deployments sort of made folks tired, made leaders uh, tired of deploying, and also took a toll on uh, defense assets because uh, there wasn't necessarily a corresponding reinvestment in uh, upgrading. It was urgent operational requirements. The fourth D would be declining defense spending. Um, and uh, again, folks have heard me say it. Uh, and my bosses, my old bosses have said it, we all see the data. 
that shows that over the past decade or so, there has been an appreciable decline in, in defense spending, again, because some of the other Ds. And then the fifth D would be uh, what I just called domestic issues. Uh, so it forced folks uh, to, and particularly after 2008 or at the end of 2008 with the global economic recession, people focused on that first. Leaders focused on that first. We also had the completion of the EU project uh, and uh, in, the, in the Lisbon Treaty and others. So there was a lot that has affected uh, the space. As I was looking at now sort of updating what I was doing and looking at what's happened just over the past 18 months or so, um, there's almost a, n a new set uh, of Ds. So, you, so that first set gave you the baseline. And then the new set um, really gets us to where we are today, where you see Putin and others uh, being in a position Maybe not where they can influence us, but they can certainly force us to not look like we are as unified and as strong and as capable as we once were. Um, and so, I got too many cards. You guys spoke so well, I had, I had to reshuffle my deck. But for those, it's uh, a funny story with Putin in 2008 in Bucharest with a deck of cards, but we'll save that for later. Uh, so as I look at, as I was getting ready for today and reading, there's, and by the way, there's been a lot of great uh, uh, analysis done by Atlanta Council, by SEPA, by CSBA, by a whole bunch of uh, organizations looking at defense trends and all of this. But to me, the, we've replaced those past five with a new set. Then it's distraction, denial, disengagement, distance, and doubt. And what I mean by those is you, you build on the last D of the domestic issues, that's still happening. We still have domestic problems that are uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic that, are create, that create a distraction for addressing the real issues. We have denial that some of these threats, whether it be Russia, whether it be ISIL, really affects all of Europe or really affects all the transatlantic community. Uh, we have disengagement. I talked to you about the heavy amount of deployments and just overall engagement by Europe over the past 10, 15 years. We see a real pulling back uh, of that, again, based on those previous factors. Uh, distance. Um, it's interesting, you can, you can describe distance in a few different ways, but one could be, there's actually been, uh, Dan's view, a growing distance between the United States and Europe on a variety of issues. But there's also been a growing distance between uh, the countries of Europe on some of the issues that matter. And to use distance in a different way, there is a distance between Northern Europe, Southern Europe, and North Africa that gives some countries, I'm not, I'm not naming any of them, the opportunity to feel like, well, it's not right there. It's not right there, it's not facing us, so therefore we'll deal with other issues. And then the last one is doubt. Doubt, and we see this within Europe, and we see it by uh, countries and leaders around the world. Doubt as to whether we're unified. Doubt as to whether we'll come to the response of one another. Doubt as to whether, we, if we say this matters, uh, and that line is crossed, whether we will do anything about it. And so, um, go back to that uh, round table or seminar I was in a few weeks ago, one of the big points that kept coming up was have we collectively and has the U.S. individually lost the ability to, de to deter its enemies and to assure its friends? And I would say part of this new threat environment or new threat horizon we're looking at is that enemies, whether they be state or non-state, uh, are questioning whether we have the ability to deter and assure. Um, I think others are questioning whether we have the ability to lead, whether we want to lead, whether we have been able to define 
what it is that we're willing to fight and defend for and necessarily die for to protect. And so that gets more to where I was, uh, what I was asked to speak a little bit more on this Russia A2AD. So for those that don't necessarily follow the acronym, so anti-access area, den area denial, um, we see it exhibited by China in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. And the, and, oh, but overall, the idea is that an actor or a group of actors would seek to deny uh, a country, an, uh, an alliance, the ability to get in close, to be able to defend uh, another country, another ally, and to deny freedom of action within a variety of domains, air, sea, cyber. And so uh, a lot of great analysis has been done in recent uh, weeks and months uh, about what Russia is doing in Kaliningrad and the Black Sea in order to establish this kind of edge or asymmetric edge on the United States and on, on NATO, so that if uh, Putin, and Putin and Russia in my mind are synonymous, were to act, that it would deny the, the US the ability or NATO the ability to respond quickly. So really, the, the challenge here would be not that uh, you could stop Russia, say, from taking a piece of Baltic or Polish territory. The fight becomes, what's the cost of getting it back? And so with A2AD, you're increasing uh, the likelihood that, you'll, uh, that who you're trying to deter will make a political ca calculation that's just too high to act. And therefore, that country, either country, either Russia or uh, the United States or others, wouldn't have to take anything because the cost would be too high. You generate a stalemate and you leave the countries that were sort of stuck in that zone, that in zone of influence in a very bad place. Um, and so over the past, well, really since the Russia-Georgia war and the lessons learned there, uh, we've seen uh, a pretty good size investment. Yeah, you know, plenty of folks have written about it, so it's not anything that's classified uh, in Russian asymmetric capabilities, but also in conventional force capabilities. Uh, plenty of stories have been written about Russia's doing in the air. Uh, not so many stories you see about Russia's doing underwater, uh, in, in cyber, and in space. Uh, and that's all very troubling. Uh, and that gets right to where your A2, AD problems would be for the alliance, uh, for the United States. Uh, Putin, uh, my view, Putin can do it for a variety of reasons uh, right now, partly because he can, uh, because he's not getting the pushback, uh, partly because uh, he has for now uh, the technological advantage uh, to be able to do it. Uh, partly, he can justify it as a way to defend Moscow because if you play with his narrative or you go down the path with his narrative, what NATO is doing with its progression from west to east is threatening uh, Moscow and threatening the very uh, rule of, uh, uh, of Russia. Of course, we don't subscribe to that, as, as you all know, but the, it plays well with the domestic audience. Um, and it goes back to those previous points I was making about the whole doubt factor. And so he's able to do this. And so A2AD is surmountable. It is, you can beat it, you can get around it, and you can, you can weaken it, but it's gonna come with a cost. You're gonna have to play that one out. It's going to have to be um, you know, a discussion amongst allies, probably one of the highest classified discussions one could imagine, because you probably are talking about a loss of life. Uh, not clear to, to what degree, but to take on, and if you believe that between Russia's air and missile defense systems, its submarines, its fighters and all that, its cyber capability, that actually could uh, inflict enough pain to deter uh, an initial response, then yeah, there are going to be consequences. And is the alliance ready for that kind of fight? Um, we also don't know, I think uh, Fabrice was correct when he said part of this new mindset or part of what we need to do 
is we're going to need to develop, and I'm not going to get your words exactly right, but some kind of escalatory ladder, some kind of escalatory decision matrix with the Russians so that, you know, the Russian claims to uh, the uh, right of first use isn't done. Um, and then we are stuck with either very little options or no options other than going nuclear ourselves. So there's a lot that needs to be done. Uh, but where I'm going with this is that um, it's achievable. Russia is not a 10-foot giant. It has its weaknesses as well. It has demographic problems. It has geography problems. It has economic problems. Its investment in forces uh, on the conventional side are, uh, aren't spotty, but they vary. Russia ha Russia's real threats, as we all know, are to its south and to its east. It's playing around in the Arctic. It's beefing up Kaliningrad. It's doing whatever it's going to do in Syria. It's playing in the Balkans. Um, again, China and others pose a far greater threat. At some point, uh, given all the, the, the trends and, and challenges that Putin is facing, he won't be able to, to sustain it. So go back to Fabrice's point. I think he's right. We need to get somewhere where we can develop some kind of partnership or constructive dialogue with Russia. This may, he may just be flexing muscles and, and, and flapping wings right now uh, to make noise and to be seen and heard, but this is not sustainable. I don't believe it's sustainable. So then that gets to, so what do we do about it? And so my view is uh, what we need to do is, or, or the following. The first thing we need to do is we need to um, basically stand up and say collectively, but certainly with the United States, that we're going to lead again. That this is, this is unsustainable. Uh, the, the, the world has become a little bit unseemly. It's dynamic. That's okay. But that we need to exert leadership. We need to spell out what it is that we stand for, and like I said before, what we're willing to fight and die for. Second, we need to develop a narrative um, and so that conversation happens to the American and European people, but it also happens directly in one-on-ones with uh, world leaders. Second, we need to develop a narrative to explain to our citizens um, what we stand for. And, why, and we need to talk to them in ways in which we're going to have to say unpleasant things. The way of life we all have, the way of life we enjoy, the freedoms we have, the ability to sit in a room like this, be on devices, just chit-chat, talk, um, there are real-world consequences. Um, I'm sure there are some people in here, and I can see some wear uniforms now, but I'm sure there are others that at some point in their life did military service. We see countries like Lithuania and others that are going back to the path of having to reinstate conscription just so there's a general preparedness uh, across the board. I'm not saying that's what needs to be done, but unpleasant conversations need to at least take place, and we shouldn't not have a conversation because we're afraid of the outcome. I think NATO had suffered uh, with that certainly when I was there uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, third, we need to focus on the threats that pose the most immediate danger. And that does now get back to your point, Nora, um, east versus south. What is it that really matters? What, what will threaten the, uh, the existence of the alliance? What will, what will cause us to go back towards the Stone Ages if we don't address? Um, fourth, accept that security and defense are mandatory cornerstones of, a, of the modern nation state and that they require investment and that there are choices that have to be made. Uh, but to some of the ideas that Magnus and Fabrice were saying, there are ways in which it can be done which won't bankrupt a country, but think of the costs if you don't invest in that. Think of what happens if you don't continue to invest or reinvest in these capabilities. 
And fifth, that is, uh, that is my last point, is the reinvestment uh, in the capabilities that are needed. A real discussion, as Fabrice and others have pointed out, about what it is we actually truly need versus nice to have, but what is, what is that you need in the, in the first round? What is it you need that will reestablish deterrence and assurance? So again, leadership gets us a long way in, in NATO's new threat horizon, and I'm happy to, to chat more about this. Great, thanks very much, and thanks to all of you for your comments. Um, I'd like to pull out two key themes that I heard across your conversation, across your presentations, and then ask you to, to respond. And uh, uh, we'll, then after we cover those, we'll go to uh, questions and answers from the audience, because I'm sure there's been a lot of provocative material here for uh, us to pick up on. Um, the first thing that I was struck by is how all of you mentioned the touchy-feely stuff of the alliance in terms, you know, as opposed to capabilities. I'll get to capabilities in a minute. But in terms of the mentality, Fabrice, you emphasized that, and Magnus, you picked up on that. And you're talking about leadership really, you know, gets to this question of political will in a lot of ways. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about capabilities, and that's really important. Um, but in some ways, if you don't have that you know, mindset, leadership, political will, however you choose to describe that, the piece that keeps the allies together and focused together, you don't have much of an alliance. Um, so I'd like to ask each of you to talk a little bit about how you see that. Dan, in particular, you've laid out some things you think that the, needs to happen, mm -hmm. uh, both within countries and probably at the NATO level. But how do, you, how do you go about generating the will to have some of those tough conversations? And how do you, within, you know, uh, Fabrice, from your perspective, from inside the institution, how do you try to generate that among the allies? I'll leave it to whoever wants to go first, Fabrice. Can I pick? Um, I think it's a very good question. It's true that the, the discussion has shifted from a few years ago when we were very much focused on capabilities, defense investment. I mean, we launched Smart Defense. We agreed in, at the Wells Summit on the Defense Investment Pledge, which is the first time 28 heads of states commit to spending within the next within the, the, the coming 10 years, 2% of GDP on defense and 20% of that on uh, defense equipment and research and development. So it's not to be neglected, not to be underestimated, even if the road is a long road. Um, but I think the discussion has shifted and in, in, a way, in a good way because it's no longer about the stuff we need as about what we need to achieve with that stuff. Uh, and I think it's really about what are the strategic effects we are seeking uh, in Europe, in the Middle East. So it's no longer about the means, but the ends. Um, and, and I think this is, I think, encouraging. And that's why uh, Dan's kind of gloomy Ds, uh, I would have added a more positive or more strategic one, deterrence. I think deterrence is back in the conversation and not in the hard-headed European capitals like mine or other ones, mm -hmm. but also in Berlin and other capitals. And I think that's quite significant uh, that you hear this D uh, being really at the center of many conversations. Uh, th that's the first thing. On, on maritime, to pick up on that, totally agree with your analysis. Uh, maritime is probably the Achilles heel of the alliance. Uh, this is where we're really punching well below our weight, even though we have the main maritime world powers in the alliance, uh, and yet we are uh, clearly struggling to generate enough uh, ships and forces to man our current operations, or what we call the standing naval forces, which are uh, the, the naval part of the <coughs> NATO response force. Uh, so th there is a real, I would say, tension here between what we know we need to do on the ma in the maritime domain 
and what we're struggling to generate in terms of assets. The reality is that we've got lots of assets. If you look at the European inventory, there are many ships out there. But the problem is that they're also overcommitted. They're committed to European Union operations. They're committed to UN, to obviously national uh, operations. So there is a problem on, of a European overstretch. And I think I would say also an American overstretch into the maritime domain. But we need to square this circle. Uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, just to finish on A2 AD, uh, because it's also linked to the capability question. First, it's interesting that this obscure acronym, I remember when I mentioned it seven months ago during a, a meeting of principals, I got most of them looking at me like, <laughs> okay, he's the policy planning guy, he's, uh, you know. Uh, and now it's very much part of the conversation. Um, now the question is, what does a counter anti-access area denial strategy mean in Europe? First, because we don't have the capabilities that the US can display in the Asia-Pacific domain, even though the US will be part of the conversation and will have to bring some of its capabilities. But we're not going to have the same kind of high-end, highly intensive, and kinetic capabilities. Um, and second, I think we have to be more political about counter A2AD. Of course, we need to consider the extreme scenario of having to do a suppression of air, uh, Russian air defense. That if we need to reinforce some allies facing an existential threat, this might have to be done. But this is, in a way, a very extreme scenario. And, and like Dan rightly pointed out, we need to build more steps into the escalation ladder. And for the moment, because we have, in a way, put aside that ladder, there are a lot of steps missing. So it's either we do nothing or we have to do the big stuff that is politically very difficult for many capitals to agree. So my point here is I think we need to really have a European counter anti-access area denial strategy which should be more defensive. Say Russia decides to close an airspace, we're going to respond by launching a maritime blockade. So it's a kind of judo strategy of you exert pressure, we are going to use that pressure to exert it somewhere else. Uh, and I think that gives political decision makers more options, more defensive than offensive. So the, the cost is less high. And it's more about this kind of contest of the will rather than having to go into basically what would be an open war with Russia, which politically is going to be a very long shot in Europe. Um, I'll be very brief in, in, um, in, in terms of changing mindset. I mean, I think part of part of what makes a mindset is is, um, is what you do and how you do it uh, is a big is a big piece to to explaining a uh, an organization's mindset. So that obviously capabilities and exercises are important because they do influence that influence that mindset. Um, um, so, so, so certainly that that is a an important supporting aspect. But I take the point that this needs to be much more of a political discussion. Um, so I think we, we need to help policymakers, both in the United States and Europe, sort of think through the unthinkable and have some of those, those um, tough conversations and air perspectives and, and air what-ifs uh, that we have not done uh, within the alliance for, um, um, for, for quite some time. And I, I would also think I, think, I think the alliance has a record of not thinking the unthinkable, but then actually going on and doing it. Uh, I mean, there was certainly a, uh, an era around the alliance in, in uh, 2009, 2010, that certainly Afghanistan was, was a bridge too far. We're never doing this again. Expeditionary, that's past us. And, and then, of course, we, we go and do Libya. Uh, and, and there are other examples of this, too. So, so I, think, I think there are examples of where, where NATO has found itself in this position before. If I just look from the American side of this, um, 
I think what I've seen over the past 14 or 15 years, um, we've created a lot of this uh, ourselves in terms of uh, losing uh, a dialogue with the American people, and I think partly uh, with, the Europe, with our European allies and others, about uh, not what matters, but how we go, what, what, what we ask and what's required of the American people in, what ma in, in achieving what matters to us. And uh, so I go back to the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and President Bush, and for all the right reasons, he, I believe he, he did it. He did it for all the right reasons, put it that way. When he said to the American people, uh, you know, we won't be deterred, uh, keep going to the movies, keep going to the shopping malls, you know, we're, the terrorists aren't going to change our way of life. What that did, though, was I think it put the, the onus and the effort on the backs of a minority, and our military is already a minority of Americans, but put a, that on the, uh, the back and the onus on a, mil, on, a, on a minority of Americans where the rest of the country was able to just proceed. We'd read about it, we'd see it, but we weren't connected to it. We weren't connected to it. And so then over this past decade of all, everything in Afghanistan, there was this disconnect. Uh, you had members of Congress that, were, again, would go out uh, to see our troops. But, you know, I, I felt that we, we, it started the fraying of the relationship between, uh, or maybe not the fraying, that's probably the bad word, but uh, the disappearance of the relationship between society and the military. Um, and I think that's been a very important uh, part of this country and of European history. And so as you look at what I was saying about some of these Ds and uh, the focus on the European project or distractions with the economy, um, you also, I think, see a, a fraying uh, or a disintegration of the relationship between the military and society in Europe as well. So you have a variety of folks elected, certainly, uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, since 2010, because I did a little bit of research on this, certainly in the U.S. Congress, and I would presume a lot in, in Europe, that that's not the platform they were elected on. They weren't elected on the platform of foreign affairs or national security. They were elected on the immediate post-2008 aftermath of the global recession and on domestic issues. Um, and so that wasn't something that the voters were driving them for. I think the, the present GOP debate is really interesting uh, because foreign affairs is coming up, whether they're well-educated responses or not. Uh, at least the candidates feel they need to respond or talk about it. Um, and so I think to get to your question of how do, you, how do we get to this place where we can have this dialogue, this discussion, it does take uh, leadership. It, re it takes somebody or a collection of somebodies. You're not going to do it at 28 at first. You may just start it with one leader, you may start it with a couple. Uh, but you need to have that discussion about enough is enough. We are being threatened, we are being blackmailed, we look weak. Uh, we can't lead, we can't achieve what we want if we don't come together. And by this way, this does bleed over into some trade deals too between us and Europe. We're not synced up and so we do look, we, we do a lot of this to ourselves. And so we need to come together and say, what matters to you is what matters to me and let's work together and you start with that base. Um, and, and, and finally, um, both sides, uh, both the United States and Europe, have really done a lot uh, to decrease their defense capabilities and their defense spending. Again, it gets caught in that debate between domestic versus, versus foreign affairs and national security. Uh, but that's all self-inflicted. We, we can fix that. We can fix that. We can change that. We can get rid of sequester, budget caps. We can get to 2% <coughs> faster in Europe. And I see that our Baltic allies have moved up their timetable from 2020 to 2018. It can all be done. It just requires leadership and political will, having those discussions with parliamentarians and with people about what matters. I will turn my second theme uh, across 
across the panel into a quick comment so we can get to questions faster. Um, the capabilities issue always comes up, but as, uh, you know, as Fabrice, you mentioned, in some ways it's secondary to the political will question, although of course you need that. Um, I think one of the, not tests, but one of the indications that we'll see if that kind of consensus is emerging among the allies, and if Fabrice, your vision of where the alliance needs to go comes to pass, is in this question, uh, particularly among the European allies, of, of an increasing willingness to pool and share resources, um, especially in some of those common areas. Fabrice, you mentioned airlift, ISR, you know, air defense, maybe less so in cyber. Um, but you know, those things are very expensive, particularly given the trends of European defense budgets, the pressures on ships, for example. You know, those assets are going to continue to be limited. And, you know, there have been some steps in this direction, but that I think will really be one of the key indications to watch. Certainly not the only one, but a, a very important one. Let me now open the floor to your questions. Uh, there are going to be mics floating around. Um, when, please introduce yourselves uh, at the beginning and please limit yourselves to a question, not a comment. I will interrupt you if you start making a speech. Yes, right here. And please wait for the mics to come to you since we have people online who are following the conversation as well. My name's Ralph Crosby and I'm on the executive committee of the Atlantic Council. Just following up on your last comment, um, there is, uh, in terms of the best utilization of scarce resources, the, no the notion of specialization is immensely applicable to the situation. But the conundrum is that if you take one of those capabilities that was discussed and have it invested by a single nation, you move to the second phase of the issue, which is the political will to apply it for alliance needs. Are we ever, will we ever get to the point, um, is, there a, is there a path to where that specialization can become a real contributor to uh, the strength of the alliance and the ability of the alliance to carry out some of those missions that you all have described? Who wants to take that? Well, uh, what I would say is, uh, I, Fabrice put his finger on it when there needs to be, uh, I'm, again, I'm going to use the wrong word, but protocol or changes at NATO in, at headquarters in terms of structure and how decisions are taken and how actions uh, are, are, are given either to SACIR to undertake for some limited period or such. Um, I think it's very important that um, I think it's very important that, that there's a streamlining and there is a sort of set agreed upon protocols that uh, where it doesn't require all 28 to come into the room and, and have to vote. That there is a threshold that's been defined, the escalatory ladder and such, that gives SACUR and others the ability to respond quickly and it gives him the ability to use national assets for whatever it is. Um, I, where I thought you were going to go uh, was that when one nation decides to, okay, we'll stand up and we'll buy X, um, then that's all that country has. Um, and therefore someone else has... Yeah, and so you may have it but can't use it. Um, it would be interesting, and, and pooling and sharing is tough. NATO, you know, there's a lot of fights in order to get NATO to agree to pool and share, uh, whether it be for the uh, C-17s or other things. But it would be interesting if there was a multi-use platform, not a single-use platform, but a multi-use platform, 
probably an air asset, but you can do it certainly with a ship, that the allies could then uh, buy into, agree to buy, then that sort of changes some of the capabilities. It could be an ISR platform, could be a naval platform, could have a whole bunch of stuff. But even a group buy won't be helpful for you if SACUR or others don't have the ability to be able to use it uh, on an as-needed basis. Yeah. Just two quick points in response to that. First, of course, there's always a tension between solidarity and efficiency. Uh, but we should not uh, neglect solidarity for the sake of efficiency. Uh, we should recall that we often say that the alliance won or finished the Cold War without firing a shot. But we should remember that I think President Putin's objective is to finish the alliance without firing a shot. Mm -hmm. That means paralyzing us politically. So we have to be careful not to fragment ourselves, not to indulge into too many flexible coalitions and so on that will, in, in a way, remove the most important aspect of our deterrence, which is our unity, however difficult it is. So that's a, a, and of course, around that, we can make our decision-making make, leaner, faster, also the strategic awareness coming in on the table of the decision makers faster, but I think in the end you still have to have that solidarity decision point. Um, so on, on pulling and sharing, I mean, I, I, I developed the, the smart defense concept and, and, and I think that was also a way to kind of deal with the economic crisis and to give the Europeans a way of working flexibly to, uh, uh, to develop uh, capabilities. But this is a long endeavor. Uh, and I think there are too many people now who are calling it uh, dead or irrelevant, uh, basically two years or three years after it has been agreed by the heads of states. Uh, we know that capability projects take an average 10, 15 years, sometimes 20 years, to come <laughs> to fruition. But it is true that in Europe, you still see, uh, I think, real resistance in terms of sovereignty, in terms of defense industrial, uh, um, I would say rights or, 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 or influence, uh, which means that it's very difficult to break the walls of national sovereignty, defense industry. There are attempts, uh, but I think as long as we don't have the big European players willing to fully play the pulling and sharing game, it's going to remain a marginal effort. Mm -hmm. So I think we still can go further and actually address some of the maritime shortfalls. Because when you talk about anti-submarine warfare, I don't think it's an option for many countries to buy what they used to have 20 years ago, which they were asked to dispose of to concentrate on expeditionary warfare. They can no longer buy this kind of high-end, sophisticated platforms. But what they can do is leapfrog and look at new autonomous technologies to actually work more in network rather than a single platform. So I think this is... We have to think in terms of leapfrogging and adaptation rather than platforms. And just to finish on Dan's point, the plug and play, what we call the plug and play, which is not for NATO to own a capability, but rather to offer a platform where nations can bring their capabilities, however different they are, and, and play together <coughs> in, in order to do more than the whole of their sum. And this is what we're going to do with the uh, Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance mm -hmm. Hub. And I think this is the way forward. So it's not about owning collective capabilities, right. which are very complicated in terms of financing, agreement, but it's more about giving nations the plug and play options so that the alliance can be more than the sum of the nation's capabilities. Thank you. Other questions? Mark. Thank you. Uh, Mark Jacobson, Department of Defense. All of you have been talking about NATO, uh, NATO's military capabilities, kinetic capabilities. Uh, Fabrice, you had mentioned 
the, uh, that NATO is also a political alliance. What concerns me most as I look out there are these hybrid threats, instability. What more can NATO do to enhance its cooperation along the civil military front, along the stabilization front? And what sort of new frameworks uh, might you envision to deal with uh, what are essentially challenges in government, governance, corruption, those areas that NATO is very uncomfortable with getting involved with, but that EU-NATO cooperation doesn't seem to have addressed uh, sufficiently? You want me to do that? Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. For, sorry, there are two answers, I think. First, hybrid or limited warfare or whatever we call that concept has also classical elements in it. What we saw in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, uh, whatever hybrid strategy, was also leaning on very conventional <coughs> strategies. So hybrid always have a conventional basis. You had you know, tens of thousands of Russian troops by the, on the, the, the other side of the Ukrainian border to make sure that whatever special forces or little agreement were put in Crimea or elsewhere will have maximum effect. So, uh, and this is something Sacker has reminded the, the North Atlantic Council many times is that in the end, hybrid also has to start with the conventional stuff to be really efficient. Then, of course, you need to be better at being nimbly and, and being able to operate around civilian and military uh, sector and sphere, because this is the whole point about hybrid. And, and I think on that there is a real, I would say there's a qualitative step forward in terms of the conversation between the European Union and NATO, uh, because they are the two, in a way, co-owners of, of the response. Uh, and of course the nations are at the center, but the two international organizations who can uh, pull a response together. Um, and, and I think the first the most important thing with hybrid is, and I will give three Ds, but uh, here, first to detect, because hybrid is about you know, the early signs of a buildup, of exerting pressure on some groups, uh, economic pressure or social pressure and so on. So you, we need to be able to detect as early as possible in order to not have to display full military response. Uh, then to also deter. That means to make sure that the adversary knows that if he starts messing around, even below the threshold, there will be a cost. And, and resilience is part of that deterrence because if the adversary knows that that country is not as vulnerable as he thinks it is, then it's, his hybrid strategy is not going to be that efficient. And then if there is a need to be able to defend, and to defend means to be able indeed to have teams that could possibly be a mix of military and civilian teams that can both work on the law enforcement side as well as on the military side. So it takes a new mindset. Uh, I don't know to what extent we will be there in terms of total new institutional makeup about how to address that, but I think there's a real new understanding that there has to be a new qualitative cooperation on that between NATO and the European Union. Other questions? Yes, right here. Good morning. I'm the Spanish Defense Attaché. It's very clear that uh, the maritime domain is, is more and more relevant. And uh, Mr. Fata, thanks to Dan, mentioned the Arctic. Keeping in mind how unpredictable is Mr. Putin, 
how proactive is the U.S., or how proactive should be in the Arctic, and not only in the U.S., but uh, some other NATO na uh, nations with interest in the Arctic. In other words, is the, the U.S., are the U.S. And the, and the Alliance ready to take the lead in the Arctic? Um, so I, I, can, um, I can start off. I mean, I, I think one of the really interesting dynamics in the, uh, in the Arctic and the High North is actually that a lot of the Arctic nations did a series of, of Arctic strategies uh, a few years back. Um, but they actually all happened before the Ukraine crisis. Um, so uh, when, when talking to those allies and just sort of seeing where the security environment is going, I think, um, I think a lot of those countries are, are, are quite ready for, uh, for another look at, uh, in, in the, uh, at their posture in the Arctic and, and their, uh, their attitude um, towards the Arctic. Um, I think the U.S. is finally waking up to this. We certainly saw, we saw Obama in Alaska. We saw Senator McCain going to the region. We saw the Deputy Secretary of Defense going to the region just, uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, so I do think that there is, uh, uh, there is a, a, a new attention paid to this uh, in, in Washington. And certainly, allies such as, such as Norway and Denmark and, and others are certainly also, also very, very interested. I would say I find the High North to be, to be a region which is where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, that in a sense that if we actually work up front now uh, in, in terms of um, exercises and political attention, we, could actually uh, we can actually save ourselves a bunch of work down the, down the road uh, if this turns into an area of uh, real uh, area of tension. So, so to me, fundamentally, it's, it's an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Other questions? Yes, uh, off the aisle, in the middle. Yes, thank you very much. Peter Michael Nielsen, so Danish Defense Counselor. So I was very pleased about the Arctic uh, <laughs> question and also the, uh, the answer from uh, Magnus. My own uh, question is a little bit in a different direction. Um, this morning, it's both been about doubt, leadership, and then, of course, uh, capabilities. And actually, I think the panel has, in a way, um, uh, focused on many sort of capabilities that we need. We need more naval forces. We need to be flexible. We need the RSR. We need the strategic lift. We need all the enablers. And then, of course, we also need, at the end of the day, probably to be able to deal with the suppression of uh, Russian uh, air defense uh, with A2, uh, D2. That's a pretty tall order uh, in light of shrinking defense budgets, maybe with a little bit of uptick in some countries recently. Do you see that coming? Uh, and are we back to the leadership question? Um, so I'll, I'll take the first stab at it. Um, I think that there, <clears throat> by decisions that have been made by <clears throat> some of, uh, well, by America and by the European allies, um, there are a range of assets that exist or will exist in European inventories or NATO inventories within a matter of years. Uh, some of it is there now. Um, it's not in the right geographic position in Europe, so it might be more towards the south, might be more towards uh, the west. It's not necessarily in the north, not necessarily in the east. Uh, it can be moved. Uh, the question goes back to uh, Mr. Crosby's point of if you have it, will you use it? Uh, and go back to, to my, one of my points, um, you know, if it, if it affects Northern Europe, does it really affect me in Southern Europe? I have a different bunch of threats. Um, and so that's part of the problem. Uh, but if you, you know, if you look at, uh, to go back to that point about A2AD, 
between the aircraft that we have, the ISR platforms, the ships, the subs, uh, the, the uh, electronic warfare jammers, the anti-radar jammers, it all exists. It all exists. It may re exist in uh, preponderance in one country or in a small group of countries, but it all exists in the inventory. It's a political will decision as to whether you can redeploy it. Some of it's kind of hard to, uh, to redeploy, but it, uh, it exists or it's coming into the, uh, into the inventory. And so the question of then, if you know about it, if, you, if through these assets you can see something, you know something about it, are you obliged to do something about it? Um, and there may be a half step where you have to let the rest of the alliance know what you're seeing, and that's how you sort of build up this place where you can actually now exert will. It's not just one nation either looking in the sand or saying, I got this myself. You're now able to broaden it because you're, bringing, you're pooling, if you will, uh, intel and other assets to help paint the picture of then to have that unpleasant conversation of what to do. Let me add a quick comment on, since you asked specifically about defense budgets, I, I work extensively on the U.S. defense budget, and just a quick comment on that. I don't see the U.S. defense budget increasing for the foreseeable future, um, frankly, no matter which party wins the White House uh, in 2016. And part of that is the way that the budget deal was structured that governs the cuts. I think you could probably, if you could separate it out, find a majority in Congress in both houses who would support increasing defense spending. Um, the, the problem is that the way that the budget cuts were enacted in 2011 require equal cuts to the domestic budget and to the defense budget, and you don't have agreement on the domestic side of that. And so unless you get some consensus, even you know, among the majority party and the, the Republicans in both the uh, House and Senate, there's deep divisions over whether that should be increased or how that should be addressed, I guess is probably the better way to say that. So as long as that remains contentious, the prospects for increasing the overall U.S. defense budget remain limited. Congress has and I think will continue to appropriate money through supplemental funds to try to make up some of those gaps. Um, and that's certainly better than staying at the cap level, but that <coughs> money can't be used as flexibly. Um, and in particular, it's harder to use that for some of the longer term investments that the Defense Department would like to make. Um, so unless the shape of Congress changes dramatically, and I don't just mean the, the party and leadership, I mean the consensus and the areas of agreement in Congress uh, within the parties as well, unless that changes in 2016 too, I don't think we're gonna be looking at a very significantly defense budget for the next, uh, next several years. Um, right here. I'm sorry, one back. Uh, thank you. Uh, Isaac Makos from American University. Uh, my question is, when we're speaking about leadership and the U.S. needing to sort of show that it stands with its allies, how does that square with the sort of very vocal uh, announcement of the pivot towards Asia and the sort of very... Um, ins this insistence uh, that Asia is now sort of the primary area of U.S. interest, how does that affect the uh, ability of the U.S. to show or even sort of seem committed to the European partnership? Thank you. So I think uh, that that has been part of the problem, um, is that I think the, uh, the, the shift or the rebalance, uh, the pivot, whatever the, the current term of art is uh, towards Asia, 
um, or that started a few years back confused our Middle East allies. It confused our European allies. Um, arguably, um, it probably led a perception that the U.S. didn't care uh, so much about Europe and that Europe could fend for itself, which may have resulted in some of the actions we see, may, uh, depending on uh, how you, you do your analysis and your probabilities. But I think, though, uh, within the past, within, that's in the past six months, and I think even probably more so in the past four months, there's been a realization from the discussions I have with folks in the administration, there's been a realization that um, Asia is important, Middle East is important, Europe is important, and that they're not, um, we, the U.S. isn't going to walk away from Europe. So you see the, the repositioning of some assets. You see some more rotational ground troops. You see the F-22s. You see a whole bunch of stuff coming. Um, I think the U.S. was slow to get there. Uh, and again, I think it sent a message, but I, for now, I, I see the U.S. remaining committed uh, to this, uh, to reestablishing a stronger foothold leadership role in Europe. I, I don't know if I could say that word, but establishing a, a reestablishing a stronger foothold in Europe. My guess? Just very quick, the thing that I find is interesting is when I look at it, the, the remarkable convergence in defense between Asia and Europe. Um, certainly different actors, different circumstances, but if you look at some of the challenges and some of the dynamics, so, so A2AD that we've, that we've talked about is actually a concept that sort of first emerged because of Asian challenges. Uh, gray zones, uh, hybrid warfare, uh, you know, contested spaces, and so on and so forth. So, so in, in, term, uh, in terms of themes, I think there's actually remarkable convergence. Uh, between, the, between the two regions. And from, from a U.S. perspective, um, what can you do with that to, to, to align efforts and perhaps even enhance efforts that you're doing in one region to transfer over, transfer over to the next? And also, there are also, of course, political convergence here in the sense that they clearly, clearly Asian powers are closely watching what Washington is doing in Europe and how, how Washington is responding to Russian aggression and drawing, uh, drawing their own conclusions about U.S. global leadership. So, so I think the, the regions are actually not quite as separate as many, as many people t uh, think that it is. In reaction to that and to the question, um, <coughs> yes, but there are some two big differences course, yeah, <laughs> uh, between Europe and Asia Pacific is uh, in Europe we have an alliance yep. which works as a, an important shock absorber mm -hmm. and not only the alliance but also the European Union and you have a declining power. Uh, in Asia-Pacific, you don't have the kind of stabilization, stabilization effect of an alliance, a regional alliance, and you have a growing power. So I don't know which one is the most dangerous, growing or declining power. I think historians are still debating that, but uh, th that creates a mm -hmm. fairly different uh, dynamic. Uh, the pivot, interestingly, at the time, I think, Jeff, you were, you were the private office at the time, actually was a bit of a shock for the Europeans but somehow triggered the debate also in Europe about what are we, going in, what are we doing in Asia-Pacific? Uh, should we join the U.S. or should we have our own strategy? And I think it was a healthy debate, and we started to uh, even have that debate inside the alliance, even though the alliance does not have a natural role in Asia-Pacific, maybe with Asia-Pacific, but not in Asia-Pacific. Um, but somehow this has been, I would say, brushed aside by... Uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian crisis, which brought uh, strategic questions much closer to home. And that's th the last part of my answer. I think the notion of American leadership is obviously central. Uh, it's always a question the Europeans are asking themselves. Uh, and it's, but it's evolving. And, and I think rightly so, uh, because also European leadership is evolving. If you mm -hmm. look in security terms, there has been a shift from the kind of expeditionary crisis management 
powers uh, to also collective defense, uh, which means that, for example, Germany is much more central to security and military questions in Europe than we were than it was 10 years ago when it was very much about Afghanistan and few other operations in Africa. Um, so I think this is also there is a bit of a new mix in terms of leadership in Europe, and I think the U.S. is aware of that and is working with that new new geometry in Europe. I think that the rebalance or pivot as it was originally called to the Asia Pacific, uh, I agree the rollout of that was not done particularly well. It had uh, you know, some very uh, unwelcome consequences, um, but ultimately was not primarily about the military. It seems to have been expressed and people think about the military <coughs> consequences, but it was always supposed to be a statement um, about diplomacy, about economics, and really about where the locus of U.S. interest is headed in the long run. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that I think that that analysis in its end, in the long term, we, of course we have the current crises that we absolutely must address, um, and the United States will always have interests in Europe and in the Middle East as well. I don't mean to say that we won't. Um, but if you look at the direction of trade, if you look at um, you know, just the locus of where American interests are headed, they are increasingly shifting to the Asia Pacific over a long time frame. And so even though some of the immediate dynamics were problematic, even though we are now very focused on the threats in the Middle East and Europe, and rightly so, I think that will be a long-term trend that will affect the U.S. relationship in the alliance and, and more broadly as well. And over a longer period of time, and that could change depending on military dynamics in the region, may have some more military consequences than was even meant at this point. Yeah, just to challenge a bit, I, I agree, and I think it was presented as a more comprehensive strategy, not just a military one, but you do see a reposturing of the U.S. presence yes. in Asia-Pacific mm -hmm. uh, with, in a way, less close to China and, and broader, including with marine bases like in Darwin in right. Australia. Right. Uh, so th there is, I think, a new footprint that is being redesigned with more uh, capabilities, especially maritime ones. Uh, but of course, in the end, it's part of a bigger strategy, I think, that the U.S. is trying to achieve, which is to maintain some kind of balance of power uh, in the region and enough stability for the region to be in business and to be uh, at the heart of economic globalization. Uh, so that takes also trade, liberalization, and so on. But I think the military aspect is also important. Yes, I certainly agree with that. Um, we're running low on time, and I see a lot of hands, so I'm going to pool a number of questions, um, and several new hands just went up, so I'm not going to be able to get to everyone, and then ask you as a panel to address the, the pieces of it that you'd like to, and then add any, any final comments. Question right here. Yep. Nope, sorry. Guy behind you. This is very hard from here, because I can't. It's hard to... Uh, my name is Lasha Gasradzi. I'm with the McCain Institute. Um, I just wanted to go back to the most recent history um, and briefly uh, discuss um, NATO expansion. Um, clearly, what happened in 2008 and the recent sort of revanchism from Russia um, forced us to sort of recalculate this entire approach of NATO expansion and, and uh, democracy promotion. Uh, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, uh, are these countries still within this calculus uh, from the West, from Washington, um, or has the ship sailed, uh, as they say, and uh, is it still a strategically looked at region? Are these countries play um, 
um, quote-unquote important role um, as, as, as potential candidates? Is there even a remote possibility uh, uh, of that happening? Now pass the uh, mic to the gentleman in front of you who I <laughs> uh, I'm Charles Faulkner from the BGR Group, and you both have, well, all three of you have talked about identity, um, unity, collective security. Uh, Dan, you spoke a little bit about um, the civil military identity in the United States, and I was thinking a little bit about the civil military identity uh, within NATO. Uh, there seem to be competing identities now, both in the United States, in Europe, with the EU, trying to have a, its own collective security uh, discussions. Uh, how do you foster uh, identities between the militaries of the United States and the European and NATO partners, uh, and not just at a field grade officer staff engagement level, um, you know, three or four years uh, potentially after somebody started their career? I saw a couple of more hands in the back. Yes, the woman on the aisle. Thank you. My name is Yelena Franceschi, and I work for Voice of America. I was very intrigued about the description that uh, Russia sort of got from the members of the panel, from a regional power, declining power, a spoiler, and so on. So I would like to get from all three of you, how exactly would you uh, define Russia's role on the international scene? It started off as a regional power, now it's in the second region in, in the Middle East, where America, it seems, wants to open up a discussion with them. So what exactly is, is Russia? What is it, what's its role today? And one more, was there one over here? Yeah. Uh, hi, Michael Sveda from the Embassy of the Czech Republic. Uh, you were talking about deterrence, and I think we all agree that the deterrence should be credible. Um, you rightly pointed out that uh, when you compare the Russia's uh, capabilities, uh, conventional capabilities, and NATO's conventional capabilities, it's clearly you know NATO uh, capabilities are greater. But if you look at the frontline frontline states, especially the Baltics, uh, the the balance is uh, the other way around. The Russia's capabilities is much better. So, especially in the Baltics, the deterrence is based on. Uh, basically belief that there is enough political will to reconquer uh, occupied territory rather than based on the real capability on the ground. Don't you think that it would be wise to move forces, substantial forces to the frontline states just to make the deterrence more credible based on the real capability on the ground? I know about the NRC founding end from 1997 where Alliance says um, it, it's not going to move substantial forces to the uh, Russian border, but it also says it was based on the current 1997, you know, threat environment, security environment, which is, I would say, very, very different from what, uh, what it is now. And also, I want I'm to... I'm sorry, i got to cut you off because I need to give each of them a chance to respond right, in the next three minutes. So you each have a minute. We'll go in the same <laughs> order. <laughs> Sorry to do that to you, uh, Fabrice, please, why don't you start? Um, first, uh, on the enlargement question, which is very important, uh, I'm not going to speculate who is going to get in, uh, who is going to stay out. I, I think this really is a political decision. Uh, but the bottom line is that, uh, first, I think the crisis in Ukraine has brought back uh, more strategic sense about those countries and that they matter into the broader European stability. So that's one important development. Second, what we're trying to do is to overcome a bit the black and white member, non-member 
uh, a choice and to say there is a membership track. It might take 5, 10, 15, whatever, X years. But in the meantime, we can still do more work together uh, to make sure that those countries, as I mentioned, are as sovereign, can make their own choices, can stand on their feet, and then they make the decisions. Uh, so I think in between no membership and membership, you can say it has to be about resilience and making sure that economically, politically, militarily, those countries are as resilient as, as, as they can. And when we look at Moldova and Ukraine, there are many challenges there. Georgia is, is a bit different. Um, civil military identity, I'm not sure I, I got the, the thrust of the question, but on the European Union, I think, yes, there is this talk forever uh, about the European defense uh, or European Union defense. But I think also the crisis in Ukraine has brought back the defense question on collective defense, which means it's much more about NATO. And I think there's a lot of awareness about that in European capitals. So I would not be worried if that was the essence of your question, that somehow the European Union is going to kind of build up a military role for itself. It has a role to play, which is much broader than military. But I think the, the core of the collective defense discussion and commitment will remain for the foreseeable future at NATO. Uh, on, on, the on the interoperability between US forces and European, we actually, uh, the previous Secretary General had launched this Connected Forces Initiative, which was exactly that, which was an attempt at the end of ISAF, which was the biggest ever operation we had done, a way to keep that connectivity between US forces and European forces. And this is now, but at the center of this readiness action plan. So to make sure that we keep that capacity to work together, that way in operation or out of operation. And then finally on the Baltic, um, uh, on, on Russia's role in the, in the international system, I think this is a question that we should ask Russia and we should ask President Putin. Uh, what kind of role do you want to play in the international system? Spoiler or responsible stakeholder? Uh, and I think this is really the question I guess he's going to answer in his own way next Monday, but I think mm -hmm. this is really how we turn the table uh, on this one. Fabrice, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. On, on, on the Baltics, yes, uh, trip wires are important. Uh, troops presence is important. This is what we're doing on a rotational basis. There might be more. This is what is being discussed now between now and Warsaw. But I think we should not just be stuck with the tripwire because the Russia strategy might go around, uh, might not be a military strategy, it might be an economic or social strategy to undermine those countries. So we just need to look at deterrence, not just in terms of troop presence. I'll, I'll go terrible speech. Charles, to, to pick up on your on, on sort of US-European civil military relations, uh, just as we should be sending forces over to Europe and train, I think it would be a great idea to actually have European forces coming to the States to train. Uh, uh, to, to, it's a signal of, of European interest in, in US, uh, US security concerns. Also, there actually is a major NATO command and a NATO center of excellence in the United States. Uh, they hang out in Norfolk. Uh, perhaps it is time for them to move to Washington. Uh, to, to be closer to the Pentagon and the national security community uh, uh, here. And then also on, um, on, on forward, uh, forward presence, um, I agree with you, and I think we're getting there slowly but surely over time, and I think we're, we're, taking, we're taking steps in the right direction. Thank you, Dan. Also, turbo speed. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to hit the last two. Uh, moving substantial forces to the Balts, that's exactly an unpleasant conversation that needs to be had. Uh, that's a conversation that should not be predetermined by, yeah, but in 1997 we said, Conditions have changed. That's an unpleasant conversation. Don't know where you'll get with it, but that's a conversation that needs to be had. On the Russia question, so um, 
in 2008, when my old boss, Ms. Uh, Secretary Gates, met with Putin, Putin answered your question. The question was, I think we actually had this conversation once. Uh, the, the question was answered. Uh, the West took advantage of Russia in the 90s. Uh, we, we lost our pride. Uh, we, we were back. We still have influence around the world. We intend to exert that influence. He never said positive or negative. Uh, and that he wants, to be see, he wants Russia to be seen as a player in the world stage. And so I think by the actions he's taken and how he's inserting himself here, there, and everywhere, you can't help but notice him. You can't help but have to figure out how to engage him. And that's, that's his strategy. This has been a terrific panel, lots of interesting <laughs> thoughts, and I'm sure the conversation will continue during the break after the, uh, the keynote that's coming up. Please join me in thanking all three of our panelists. You could all please take your seats. Thank you. Um, you know you have an important session when the Pope is your warm-up act, uh, and uh, and when President Xi Jinping will come afterwards. And so, uh, as Fabrice said earlier today, it's the and only the Atlantic Council is audacious enough to squeeze itself in between the Pope and 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 President Xi Jinping. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, just to briefly open our keynote session with Minister Sereda. Uh, um, I, I've taken a, a peek at the draft of uh, the statement she's going to make, and it is a significant statement. Uh, and I think uh, you'll all be impressed by it, and we'll make sure that something is up on our web uh, right afterwards as well. My job, Minister Sereda, is not to introduce you. Uh, uh, that will be left to the uh, former Secretary of Defense, uh, Chuck Hagel, and our former chairman, who will also join you for the Q&A section of this. Um, this is Secretary uh, uh, Hagel's first appearance at the Atlantic Council since he left, first public appearance at the Atlantic Council since he left the Pentagon. He has walked around the halls greeting and talking to our staff. Uh, as uh, many of you in the audience know, he was our chairman during a historic uh, period of growth of the Atlantic Council, both in size and influence. Uh, first enlisted combat veteran and Vietnam veteran to be Secretary of Defense, two-term Senator of Nebraska. Uh, and if I, in, in, if I introduced him any longer, he would get angry at me since he's the introducer. He has now returned to the Atlantic Council as distinguished statesman a member of our International Advisory Board and also a member of the Rafik uh, Hiri Center Advisory Council. So, Secretary Hagel, welcome home. Fred, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Fred, thank you very much. And to uh, each of you, thank you for uh, forsaking the Pope and uh, applying your attention here to uh, the Atlantic Council. I uh, want to make just a, a a brief comment about the Atlantic Council because uh, I think what uh, Fred Kemp and his team have done over the years uh, has been pretty remarkable. And I, I think it's remarkable for many reasons, but in a world that is, uh, is shifting and changing at an unprecedented rate, uh, bringing uh, challenges that uh, we've never seen before, uh, not without tremendous opportunities that are also unprecedented. Uh, this institution, this organization, uh, is really relevant uh, to the debate and to bringing uh, very important and relevant leaders uh, into the discussion. 
and allowing uh, members and uh, people who are associated with the Atlantic Council the, the benefit of participating and listening and questioning uh, these leaders like our, our guest uh, the, this morning. My role um, and former chairman have very few roles, uh, but uh, this role I am uh, particularly honored to have and privileged to have because uh, it is to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Uh, she uh, is a pretty remarkable person. Not only is she the uh, defense minister uh, from the country of Norway, which uh, represents an important uh, NATO ally and friend to the United States, has for many years, uh, but uh, her years of uh, participation in leadership in foreign policy, national security issues uh, is really pretty special, which has equipped her uh, to do this job. Uh, I got to know her during the two years I served as Secretary of Defense, uh, in particular at our NATO ministerial uh, meetings, which uh, can sometimes, like all meetings, um, go on and on. Uh, but. Uh, this particular minister uh, never viewed it that way and maximized uh, her involvement. And I always appreciated it uh, because when she spoke, people uh, really uh, did listen because she has something to say. I'm not going to recite her biography. I suspect you uh, know a great deal about uh, where she, she has been, what she has done. Uh, she will do much more in the future uh, with um, the kind of respect that she uh, has in her own country and in Europe, uh, in the world. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, she is one of those uh, individuals who I'm glad is on our side. Uh, it's a personal privilege to have her here, uh, a person, as I said, I've, that I've gotten to know and work with uh, uh, closely. And uh, it's a, a real honor to uh, present to you the defense minister from the, uh, from the country of Norway, uh, Defense Minister Sarita. Please, Ine, thank you. No pressure, huh? Well, dear Chuck, dear Fred, Damon, Barry, Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, it is so great to be back in DC and to be back at the Atlantic Council. I'm looking forward to discussing NATO's uh, future and transatlantic relations. And those who have heard me speak before know that these issues are very close to my heart. And I'm also, of course, especially glad to be introduced by you, Chuck. And I'm proud and honored to call you my friend. And we have kept in touch, and we were able to do some great work together at NATO uh, when you were Defense Secretary. And your contribution to transatlantic security and to the alliance is enduring. I think you make that clear by your presence here today as well. I would also like to thank the Atlantic Council for organizing this event, squeezing it in between the Pope and the Chinese. But this shows, in my opinion, your continued leadership on transatlantic security. During my two years as a Secretary of Defense or Defense Minister, there has been a notable change in Washington. I think it's fair to say that European security is back on the agenda. And obviously, recent events in Europe has had an important impact 
in this regard. But I would also credit the Council on this. You have continued to speak on behalf of transatlantic security and to maintain U.S. awareness of the importance of Europe. And I'm so grateful that you've done that. I'm also glad that so many of you have joined us today. This morning, I will focus on the state of the transatlantic union. I will also touch upon the evolving security situation in Europe and in Norway's neighborhood. I will touch upon how new realities shape Norwegian priorities and also how NATO should adapt to this. But first, let me address the state of transatlantic affairs. From a Norwegian perspective, and from the perspective of European leaders, it is clear that we need U.S. leadership in NATO. And I really want to emphasize this point. U.S. leadership in Europe is needed and it is desired. But a truly comprehensive and enduring transatlantic strategy needs a strong European commitment as well. It needs to be based on both sides of the Atlantic sharing the burdens. NATO solidarity means that we consider threats to one ally as a threat against all of us. And solidarity among allies is about the big strategic decisions. But it's also about working together every day to shape a common strategy, to make that strategy work. NATO solidarity is built upon the common democratic values of the Atlantic Treaty. And the foundation of this relationship is trust. Trust in our collective defense capabilities and trust in the strength of the transatlantic ties. So this mutual dependence can only work if we are honest about the affairs of NATO today. The United States account for approximately 69% of the Alliance defense budgets. The financial crisis that took Europe in 2008 has resulted in the following quite paradoxical situation. As defense and security, the challenges on defense and security are increasing, defense budgets have been decreasing. In 2014, and Chuck knows this better than many, 21 out of 28 allied, allied countries spent less on defense than in 2008. The situation is not sustainable. Our ability to share the burden of collective defense is a pressing issue that puts each of our allies' ability to prioritize to the test. European leaders might be tempted during hard economic times to argue that the U.S. should continue to bear the burden of European security and to even look to the U.S. to do more. I vividly remember when Chuck presented the European Reassurance Initiative during a ministerial in NATO. Many of our colleagues saw it as a go-ahead for Europe to do less. But the message that Chuck and the U.S. wanted to convey was a signal that European allied allies needed to do more to our collective security. There is a clear, understandable, and also completely justified expectation from U.S. policy and decision makers that Europe must take a larger responsibility 
for our own security and defense. As Europeans, we need to understand that sustained U.S. commitment to Europe depends on our willingness, our ability to step up to the plate. The Russian aggression towards Ukraine has been a wake-up call. And 2015 appears to be the year that the decline in European defense budgets has halted and in some cases been reversed. Sustaining and strengthening this budget trend must be our priority. The health of the transatlantic relationship depends on more than dollars and euro. NATO is a political alliance. And the financial crisis in Europe has also had political effects. Many European countries are now experiencing domestic political tensions that aggravate the challenge of transatlantic burden sharing and NATO solidarity. We need to keep an eye on the changing political situation in Europe. And without being alarmist, I would assert that we are seeing some worrying trends in the health condition of European politics. Nationalism is on the rise. Trust in political and democratic institutions, both including the EU and NATO, is diminishing. Radical movements, both on the left and on the right, are gaining momentum. That happens right now in several European countries. Some of the radical European political parties from both sides of the political spectrum openly admire Putin and Putinism. Anti-establishment, anti-modernity are common features of these movements. The more complex and multifaceted the world around us is, the more polarized politics seem to become. How we handle the ongoing refugee crisis will be a test for Europe. The sheer magnitude and the acuteness of the crisis is staggering. This is the largest refugee crisis since the Second World War. In Europe, we have so far not been able to address the crisis in a coherent way. Several countries have made exemptions to immigration laws, but we've also witnessed the opposite. Fences have been erected to keep refugees out and border control has been re-established within Schengen. If not handled correctly, the refugee crisis could lead to further fragmentation in Europe. And the reason for mentioning these aspects here in this speech is that they have potential implications for our political cohesion as well as our collective decision-making ability, also within the realm of security policy. An increasingly polarized and fragmented Europe could damage or undermine transatlantic unity. And that comes at a time when unity is more important than ever. Dear friends, the complexity of the situation demands that we all do our part. So let me now turn to the changes in the security landscape in Europe and how they are felt in Norway's neighborhood. Also, some words on how we are meeting these challenges. Most of Norway's surroundings are sea territories. Norway is responsible for sea areas that are seven times larger than our land territories. 
of Norway's sea areas are north of the Arctic Circle. We have vast maritime areas and we have a unique geographical location. The north is an area where the strategic interests of NATO meet those of Russia. This is NATO's northern maritime flank, and this is an area that has been largely neglected by the alliance over the past decades. To be very clear on this, we do not see a military threat towards Norway or Norwegian interests from Russia in the current situation. We firmly believe that we have a common interest in predictability and stability in the north. But the strategic changes forces us to think differently now. In my opinion, we have, as politicians, an obligation to talk about the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. The Russian military reforms, which started in earnest in 2008, have, reduced, uh, have resulted in increased military mobility and also responsiveness on the Russian side. Russian military activity is in many ways at a level you would expect from a country and power of that size. In High North, we have so far not seen any huge increase in the number of Russian flights, but we do see a more complex and more and of a different quality, the uh, activity that they are doing. The reforms have improved the efficiency of command and control systems. And this means that the concept of warning times is now profoundly changed. We cannot no longer expect warning times that we had before. We are seeing the introduction of new high-end maritime capabilities both surface and subsurface. These platforms have high-precision, long-range strike capabilities. The Russian defense concept has a strong focus on ensuring sea control and sea denial to protect the nuclear forces based on the Kola Peninsula. So, given the strategic importance of Russian capabilities in the high north, this area will be highly relevant in any potential crisis or conflict involving Russia. Dear friends, my key point this morning is this. As a result of these developments, especially in the maritime domain, we are on the verge of an anti-access area denial challenge in the North Atlantic. We could potentially face a resurrected threat to the sea lines of communications across the Atlantic. Therefore, this challenge is not limited to the North Atlantic, but it concerns all of Europe and the US. The understatement of the day is that there is a considerable, considerable asymmetry between Norwegian and Russian military power. Our main task will be to have a good situational awareness this is key to continued stability. As a part of next year's defense white paper, we will focus on developing and acquiring capabilities that provide situational awareness, presence, and fighting power. At the end of the day, though, Norway depends on NATO for our security. But we need a NATO that is credible and capable. 
Thus, NATO needs to evolve to meet the evolving security situation. One area that needs more attention is the increasing challenges of the maritime domain. Activities in NATO's maritime areas are increasing, not just in the north, but also across the whole of NATO's area of responsibility. The Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, and the Mediterranean. The challenges are very different, but they should met, be met by a coherent NATO strategy. Maritime power and presence is becoming more important to NATO. We must focus on generating true allied maritime capabilities. I spoke to Secretary Carter about this yesterday, and working with key allies to us, such as the US, will be the main issue in the run-up to the Warsaw Summit next year. NATO must not yield on the maritime flanks. But NATO also needs a more structural and fundamental change. The reassurance initiatives, they have been put in place and they have been very important. They've had a stabilizing effect and we were able to act quickly. Especially, I would commend the US for reacting very quickly to these challenges. But reassurance activities are important and valuable, but they will not have a lasting effect unless we develop a strategic framework that guides us as an alliance. We cannot only do deterrence on a rotational basis when a situation comes up, we need to have a long-term strategy. We need to dispel the notion that these initiatives are temporary, only in place until the current situation is resolved. Reassurance and also the readiness action plan are terms that still have a temporary ring to it. I'm of the opinion that we do need a long-term strategy. No matter what happens in Ukraine over time, we will still in all likelihood and in the foreseeable future have to deal with a Russia that is fundamentally different than we assumed before Crimea. That is why we need an enduring strategy that addresses the enduring change in our security environment. In NATO, we need to take a hard look at the current command structure and our planning processes. Norway has called for a strategic framework for training and exercise as well. There are a number of important exercises being held at the national and multinational level. The truth is though, that NATO's involvement in these activities is limited and in some cases not, ex not existing. This is a situation that must be addressed. Exercises and training are not only important for the collective military capability of the Alliance. They are also key tools in NATO's toolbox. As hosts, it is a top priority for us to make the high visibility exercise for 2018 as relevant as possible. If we adopt a strategic approach to exercise and to training, these activities can support our policy objectives of providing reassurance, deterrence, and stability. In short, NATO needs to look at how we do business. We need to make necessary changes to prepare the alliance to meet the security environment that is changing fundamentally and also strategically. This should be the main theme for Warsaw. Dear friends, the state of the transatlantic relationship is strong. But as all friendships, 
It requires effort and work from both sides. We need leadership, we need engagement from the US, and Europe needs to invest more in our own security. The political situation in Europe demands attention and focus. We face a threat environment that is unprecedented in its complexity. NATO, and with the transatlantic relationship as at its core, has never been more important. As we continue to develop NATO, we have to focus on high-end collective defense capabilities across services and domains. Before getting to DC, I spent a couple of days in Texas attending the rollout of Norway's first F-35 fighter aircraft. I can assure you it was a milestone and it was a wonderful, wonderful ceremony. But a NATO without credible collective defense forces will lead to increased instability. And a NATO without US leadership will also lead to increased instability. But let us be firm. Let us work together on a NATO strategy that deters aggression and that ensures international order based on the rule of law. Future generations will look back at uh, our time and perhaps see a watershed in European history. I can only hope that the decisions we are making today under great uncertainty will stand the test of time and that our children and our grandchildren will have reason to be proud of us. This demands our continued commitment to the values that we hold so dearly, democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. We must work together, bound by these values, to find common solutions. By that, I am proud to announce that Chuck and I will take questions. <laughs>
how do we need to arrive at this? Is this a new strategic review of NATO? Um, what, what, maybe even more specifically, what might be the elements of that strategy and how do we get to them? Thank you, Fred. Um, I think that in, in giving this statement that I've also been doing um, during ministerials and, and other places as well, I think the most important thing is to focus on uh, the fact that what, what happened with Ukraine sort of took NATO and everyone else a bit by surprise. We had gone from a period where we wanted to look at Russia as a strategic partner. NATO wanted to as well. And suddenly we had this wake-up call saying that this was probably not possible anymore, not, at least not in the same fashion that we had done before. And what does that entail for, a, for, an, for an alliance like, like NATO? And in my opinion, um, we have now over time had reassurance measures that I think have been working well. I think it has been very good to see that all allies put something on the table for reassurance. Mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning, I remember one of the ministerials we attended, uh, I think the Secretary General had a list of the countries mm -hmm. that were not presenting anything to the reassurance table. Um, and of course, the meeting afterwards, everyone presented mm -hmm. something. Uh, and that has been good for, for allied cohesion. But I think that we need to look beyond the temporary measures and, and actually realize that we are in a changed strategic situation, um, which means that we need to deal with <coughs> Russia or other issues uh, in a more long-term way as well. Uh, I do not mean that we should not um, discuss with Russia or talk to Russia or cooperate on areas where we have common interests. I mean, Norway still do. We cooperate on Coast Guard, Border Patrol. We have an open line of communication between our operational headquarters and the Northern Fleet in order to avoid misunderstandings. Uh, but at the same time, we have suspended our bilateral military cooperation of natural causes. So it isn't an either or. Uh, we can do cooperation where we have mutual interests in it. But I think the most important part of discussing this in a long-term strategy is actually to realize that this is not something that will pass in a month or two. We have to prepare NATO for actually taking steps to do deterrence, to do uh, cohesion in a different way than just, just thinking six months ahead. Thank, thank you for that. Um, Secretary Hegel, uh, a lot of what shifted uh, regarding Russia, uh, uh, you witnessed while sitting over at the Pentagon. How was your view of Russia and how to deal with Russia? How did it shift during the time that you were in the Pentagon? And now how do you look at it, particularly with this new element of, of Putin in Syria with combat aircraft, uh, uh, new news today that, uh, that if right, uh, that he's intending to take unilateral strikes on ISIS if he can't find out a way to do parallel action together with us and, and, and you have a possible meeting between President Obama and Putin next week. So, so what did you experience in office? What, what do these new elements do in terms of how to deal with Russia? Fred, I would uh, answer it this way. I would add on to what Ine said uh, about credibility, capability of NATO uh, because uh, that, that is a fundamental anchor um, for the United States, uh, not just on transatlantic issues, but you look at the, the eastern flank of NATO, Norway being at the top, as Ine mentioned in her speech about the Arctic, and then uh, in all of the interests coming uh, down through that line, uh, that credibility, capability, 
which underpins credibility, capability, uh, has to continue to adapt to the realities of what we're seeing, uh, the threats in Europe, not just coming uh, from Russia, but also coming up from North Africa in the Middle East, what's going on now with refugees, uh, but also uh, uh, sea lanes, which you mentioned, uh, and uh, keeping airspace uh, free. Specifically to your question, uh, to add on to what I've just said, uh, Fred, we, as you note, uh, have seen an, an astounding shift in uh, policy, uh, Russian policy, on how the Russians would approach their interests, not just with the United States, but with Europe and in the Middle East. I've always fundamentally believed that uh, uh, any nation, but uh, a, a nation like Russia, which is uh, uh, one of the most significant nations in the world, one of the most powerful nations in the world by, by any measurement, starting with their nuclear capability, uh, their resources, uh, their size, their capability, their military, and go, go, go all the way through, um, uh, wants to have a role in the world. And uh, I, th I think we fundamentally make a mistake when we try to block great nations' roles in, in the world. Uh, we, we're not going to block the Chinese role in the world. We're not going to block the Russians' role in the world. And so we've got to find the, the common, uh, Ine said, interest, but the common denominators of where then we can work through these big issues. That takes a channel of communications, too. Which I've advocated when I was at the Pentagon, and I and you and you spoke to the I defense minister there. I did often, uh, yeah. often, yeah, uh, as I did with uh, LCC, mm -hmm. uh, because you cannot, I don't believe, cut off channels of communication and then expect things to get better. Things will not get better; they will get worse. That doesn't uh, it, it all necessarily alter the direction of a policy of a nation. Uh, nations will always respond in their own self-interest, and each leader takes that self-interest of, of, of a nation in different directions, and, so, and many times not in good directions. Yeah. And I don't think where President Putin is taking Russia is in a particularly good direction, but it's a reality. It, it is, it, there's no point in wringing our hands about it. Uh, he is the president of Russia. We have to deal with that. So we have to adapt to where can we find some adjustment in policies of common denominators in the Middle East. You, you, you talk specifically about, uh, about how we deal with that. Well, I've also believed that there will never be a resolution or a solution in an area as complicated as the Middle East, and that probably represents the most complicated area of the world. I don't know of one that's more complicated. <laughs> History, ethnicity, tribalism, religion, all underpinning and fomenting uh, and despair what's going on over there until we get a, an element of stability. Well, you can only get stability if you bring the, the most powerful nations together in, in some stable resolution of then uh, building a platform to get to the next platform, and that is resolution and maybe even solution. It cannot be done without the players in the, in the, in the Middle East. I think you, in the Middle East, for example, go back to the Sykes-Picot uh, agreement of 1917, when the British and the French decided uh, that they were going to carve up the Middle East. Uh, it was straight colonialism, 1923, when the British and the French did 
draw the lines of the Middle East. When World War II then came along, and we were supposed to be about eliminating uh, colonialism. I, I think you can you can take take it back that far, or go back to 16th or 650, when Sunnis and Shias started to divide the Muslim world. So we're not going to solve that problem, and Russia's not going to solve that problem. But uh, I think you have to have Russia, Iran, the United States uh, involved in helping bring some stability to, to get to the next platform uh, of how do, you, how do you start to help figure it out. Uh, it's complicated. It is, it is as complicated as anything I think we've faced since the end of World War II because it does spill over into Russia, uh, into other uh, relationships uh, in, in the world. And then not, not only are we dealing with that in North Africa, but Asia Pacific. And so you've got to keep all the balance of, of our responsibilities. Last point I'd make, let's not forget that the United States is the only nation in the world that has treaty obligations uh, with other nations. Uh, now you, some people may not like that, and, and maybe America eventually wants to give up those responsibilities, but there is no nation on earth that has the kind of responsibilities that we take seriously we have. We have seven treaty obligations in the world, and they're all over uh, the world. The collective security obligation we have with NATO, articulated clearly in Article 5, is, is pretty clear. It's 27 other nations. If you, if you invade another nation, when we will go to war with, as all other nations, in defense of that one NATO nation. But we've got, we've got obligations everywhere. And when you've got a, a, an obligation and a responsibility like we have, the Russians don't, Chinese don't, no one else does, then, then you, 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 you must find alliances and relationships and partnerships that work. Uh, last point I'd make, the, the Middle East, or where, where the Russians are and they're pushing in, obviously I don't, I don't know what is in Putin's mind. I don't know if anybody does. But my guess is that a certain amount of that is about the Russians don't want to be pushed out of the Middle East. And uh, they want to have a role in the Middle East. Well, uh, okay, uh, nations can have roles, responsible roles, uh, roles that uh, help stabilize a country and a region. Uh, but there's only so much great powers can do. We, we, have, we have limitations to our, our power, too, as great a country as we are with the powers we have. Can't do this without alliances and, and partnerships. The Russians have got to be part of something here. I mean, let's just use one example. When, when we were able to, along with a number of our European friends, uh, but in particular the Russians, the Russians were key to this, uh, get precursors for chemical weapons moved out of Syria. Now, it was imperfect, but, but, but the United States partnered with a number of European countries, and the Russians were key to that. Now, did that serve the interests of the Russians in many ways? Yes, it did. That's okay. It served our interests. Now, that hasn't stopped the war in Syria or what's going on in Syria, uh, but it's bigger than just uh, Syria. I mean, you've got a number of countries that don't have really functioning governments in the Middle East. So I know I've kind of meandered around to answer the question, but I don't think there's a quick one sentence or one paragraph answer to your question. And I would end this way. We're living at a time where the world has never seen such diffusion of power, economic power, power measured by any means. Uh, 
that that presents a certain a certain destabilizing dynamic uh, to the world because the the good old days when you had the Soviet Union and their bloc and the United States and the West we essentially kind of between those two had it all figured out those days are over and I'm glad they're over and I I, I hope I think most people in the world are glad it's over uh, so so you've you've got a breakdown in world order in, because of the complications of technology, of economics, of awareness, of, of actually nations accomplishing much of what we wanted and hoped and helped accomplish over 70 years of a world order that's worked pretty well, and that is nations evolving into their own, their, their, their own power base, making their own decisions, having their own economies having hope, education, and building onto those economies. So all that is in the mix now, Fred, and, and uh, patience is all, all part of that too. But, but alliances are as critical today as I think any time ever. Thank you, Secretary Hagel. You may want to comment on this. There's, there's unanimity here in both uh, uh, the nature of Russia has changed and you have to engage with it. So I don't know whether you want to comment um, uh, on anything that Secretary Hagel has said, and, and if not, I'll move on to the high north. But do you want to comment on what you've heard? Well, I, I agree pretty much with what, uh, what Chuck has been saying now. And um, I think that it is quite crucial, and that, that was part of my point also in my speech, that NATO as an alliance has never been more important. And that is exactly because of the things that Chuck are mentioning. You need to partner, you need to find allies, you need to find friends in order to get anything done. And my point is that right now, at this point in time, it is even more important than ever to do long-term strategies and work with those friends and those partners. Uh, we can no longer do the short-term versions of, of trying to adapt to situations. We have to realize that they are of a more lasting nature than we may have seen up until now, or at least uh, for the past decades. Thank you for that. And um, we'll come back to that in conjunction with the Warsaw Summit. Uh, the high north. Um, tensions been rising. Uh, Russia, if I'm not mistaken, is set to build 10 new search and rescue stations at ports in the Arctic shoreline, has dropped four, 50 paratroopers onto the North Pole. Um, so uh, you're right, things have not gone as far in the high north as they have elsewhere. But on the other hand, uh, is a militarization of the Arctic inevitable? And uh, question one. And then the second question is uh, what you would like to see NATO and the United States do to promote security in the high north? Well, I think it's, um, as you say, important to, uh, to separate between what we see around the Baltic Sea region and what we see in the high north. The Baltic Sea region, uh, there has been experience of a a threefold uh, number of flights compared to 2013. They fly more aggressively, uh, the Russians violate airspace, and it's, it's kind of a quite different picture than we see. Um, we see more of the same activity, even though more complex. Uh, longer flights with several mm -hmm. types of planes and, and quite a bit of difference, but not the enormous increase in the number of sorties or flights. Uh, however, um, I do think it's, um, it's fair to say that everything that is happening in the North now is something that we pay much attention to. And from our part, it has always been and still is extremely important to have a presence that constitutes a normal situation. There has been discussions uh, at some point, and I think that comes in every country, that 
would our presence, that is the normality that we've always had, actually be a provocation to the Russians? And should we kind of retract from our positions? In my opinion, uh, that is not the solution. We need to uphold and strengthen the presence that is a normality. And what I would like to see from the alliance, and I've raised this on several um, ministerials as well, is an increase both US attention and presence, but also NATO presence. This is NATO's area of responsibility. And I think that we need to realize that when times are changing, a presence, a stable presence, is also of a way of reducing tensions and to stabilize a situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I think that part of this long-term strategy that I'm talking about and that will come up in Warsaw as well is namely that we need to position ourselves and prepare ourselves for something that is different and over time. So let me, let me re uh, respond to that as well because uh, I think the minister is exactly right. Um, for the United States, I would, I would uh, refer back to a couple of years ago, uh, President Obama announced in May of 2013 the first national security plan and strategy for the United States. In November of that year, 2013, I announced the Defense Department's defense strategy in Halifax, Canada. And uh, it was built uh, upon the exact same principles that Ine mentioned, presence, stability, security, uh, where we, uh, where the world always runs into difficulties is, is when there are gaps and the, where there are absences, when there are vacuums. History is rather replete on, the, on that point. Uh, we're behind, quite frankly. The United States is behind in the Arctic and that entire area. And I've said so when I was in the Senate. I said so. Senator John Warner and I, when we served together on the Intelligence Committee, introduced legislation about the, the coming effects of climate change, what that was going to do to the Arctic, open up the sea lanes, uh, minerals, possibilities, shipping, yeah. and it was going to attract, certainly the Russians, but it would attract others. The Chinese are playing up there. The Chinese are building two new icebreakers. The United States is way behind. We've got two icebreakers, and one, they're not state-of-the-art, they're old. One doesn't really work. Uh, the Chinese are ahead of us on that, the Chinese. So what, uh, what Ine is saying here is, is really important, and uh, we, we've got to catch up. NATO has to be part of this, and it's certainly because of Norway being the, essentially the entry country here, is, uh, it's critically uh, important. So um, that's an area that uh, I was referring to earlier, and I know you talked about generally in your, in your comments, about all the areas of the world we have to pay attention to. And it isn't just along the Russian border uh, or, or the southern border of the Mediterranean or anywhere else or Asia Pacific. Uh, it's everywhere. And, and that, that cannot uh, allow to drift into an area where, where we, we, we don't have stability and security. And um, we can't afford to get too far behind there. We can't afford to get behind uh, at all. So it, it's, an, it's an understated area. There's no attention on it really these days because 
uh, we go to the shiny object, the media does, everybody does, the attention, uh, we go to Syria or whatever, wherever is exploding at the moment, that's what we pay attention to. But leaders cannot do that, and uh, alliances and, and nations can't do that with responsibilities. We, we've got to cover it all, and this is a particularly important one. Um, we don't have very much time left, but I do think we need to touch on the Warsaw Summit and the NATO strategy that you're talking about. This is pretty ambitious stuff you're talking about. Um, uh, wh where are NATO allies on this? Uh, you know, uh, you know uh, is, is this a dream that you hope that you can push through by then? Or, uh, or where is the uh, consensus on this? Are we going to set our sights too low at a time of history when we really have to set them much higher? Well, I, I don't do dreaming as a strategy, usually. So <laughs> I, um, I, I try to um, do uh, what I think any responsible leader uh, today would have to do, and that is push the alliance that we depend on, that all our other allies depend on, in the right direction to cope and adapt with the changes that we're seeing around us. Um, and I have been advocating ever since the reassurance measures were put into place, and Chuck has heard this speech many times, I think, so I will not repeat it. And I'm a better person speech. for it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so I will not repeat it too much. But uh, actually saying that the reassurance measures are good. But if the uh, high readiness forces, uh, the readiness action plan, uh, the things that we're doing immediately are the only things we're doing, we are not adapting NATO to the future. And the future doesn't only hold uh, the discussion of a more self-confident Russia. It also holds a whole range of other challenges stemming from different parts of around the alliance. My point is this, this is how the security picture around us is going to look for the foreseeable future. The old threats, they merge with the new threats, and the picture today could look completely different from one year from now. The only thing we know for sure is that there will be a complex picture. We will be challenged and threatened from many angles. And unless we adapt and, to that and thereafter adopt a strategy that can actually cope with this, I really think that many of the things that we're doing right now in order to handle and kind of contain a certain situation is not going to be much help. So I'm not dreaming about this. I'm, kind of, I'm working hard to uh, make the rest of the alliance also realize that this is the way we need to go. And I do sense, when we discuss this, a big change now compared to six months ago in how allied countries uh, see this and, and view this issue. So in, uh, my hope is, not my dream, but my hope is, mm -hmm. that the hard work that we and the US and other core allies for us are putting down on this will actually make sure that we in Warsaw next year will be able to adapt to what challenges we have now in the future and make this alliance even stronger. So uh, final word, Secretary Hagel, the uh, Warsaw Summit. There's a call for US leadership here. Um, uh, you've been in the Pentagon, you've seen the issues of NATO, uh, how they resonate uh, in the administration on Capitol Hill. How much uh, support do you uh, find around you here in Washington for a, a, a robust U.S. leadership of NATO? And what, what, what would be success at the Warsaw Summit in that respect? 
I think um, something that Ine just said uh, in reference to a, a fundamental shift the last six months or last probably 12 months in, first of all, awareness of the threat. Uh, I mean, what Russia has done the last year and a half ha has really uh, rung some alert mm. sirens. And I think here in the United States and elsewhere in the world. I mean, this isn't just uh, uh, thinking about or assuming uh, that something's going to happen, but it has happened. And uh, just as Ine said, everybody I think was caught off guard uh, on that, uh, that action. Now, that awareness is very helpful, and, and you can't have any change in policy or commitment to assets and what's required to deal with any uh, big challenge without awareness. Uh, but, but that isn't alone enough. Uh, we've got to internally here in the United States uh, get back to actually governing, which we, uh, that's a bit out of your ballpark, right, <laughs> which you, you should be thankful for. But uh, uh, this mindless sequestration and, and, and this really just uh, uh, irresponsible approach to what we're doing to ourselves in the United States um, taking these huge cuts at the Pentagon Defense Department budget, when you ask, are people aware? Uh, there's a, a, a interesting dichotomy about all that. I mean, the politicians, those in Congress, will say they're aware of all these problems, but yet they won't uh, they won't translate that into allowing those responsible for the security of this country. Uh, to have the resources and the responsibility to actually function to deal with it. So it's an internal issue as much as anything for us. Um, I think we'll find a new center of gravity of getting back to some responsible governance. I mean, essentially, we just have been paralyzed and polarized totally. I suspect it's not going to get any better this next year because it's all about politics here mm -hmm. uh, now in Washington and uh, in, in the country. But if we don't get this turned around, uh, then, then we will be incapable of adapting quickly and maneuvering and doing the things that we need to do. And um, uh, again, this is something that you, you can't deal with directly. We're going to have to do this. The other part of that is the danger for the United States is that our allies see this. And we lose credibility. We lose trust uh, in who we are and our word and our commitments. And our adversaries watch this too, mm -hmm. and so we've got to we've got to get turned around on this, and I think uh, I think we will. Um, I am uh, I am one who ab absolutely believes that we're given, going through one of these periods where, in history, again, is replete with this, where uh, whether you look at the markets. Or, or any dimension of a society or leadership in world affairs, uh, it seems like the world is blowing up. Everything is going to hell. Markets are going down. Everything is going the wrong way. That's not true. I mean, there are a lot of things going the right way. But, um, but we're, we're at that point where steady, wise leadership, resourced alliances, and leadership is all about one thing, and that's tomorrow. It's not yesterday. And it, it, it is difficult today because, and I will leave you with this, I don't know a time in my lifetime, which I suspect is the same lifetime as most everybody in this room, 
when it has been more difficult to govern. And that's not an excuse uh, for not governing or making mistakes. But I don't know when it's been more difficult to govern anywhere in the world, certainly in the United States, uh, it, because of all the things we've talked about, complexities and realities, and how do you adjust to these things. And uh, democracies are, are, are really the only adaptable form of government that can deal with these things, because we can self-correct. But if we don't use those mechanisms, then, then, then we will fail our uh, we'll fail the future, and I, I don't think that'll happen, but uh, that's how serious it is, I think. Terrific. Thank you, Secretary Hagel. For those in the audience, before the end of the year, we'll have a Reflections of Defense Secretary session here. We'll have an hour and a half with Secretary Hagel to talk through some of these issues in, in more depth as well. Uh, Steadywise Leadership Resource uh, of Alliances, this is all about tomorrow. I want to thank Minister Sereda. That was a very significant statement, terrific uh, 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 Q&A session. And Secretary Hagel, thank you as well for your compliments of the Atlantic Council's work. We are determined on all of those levels that we talked about in this Q&A conversation, looking at issues of the high north, looking at the issues of Russia and how this is evolving, what do we do about it, and definitely looking at the issues of the alliance and how do we reinvigorate, remake, reshape the alliance for a whole host of new challenges. So thank you for taking the time and uh, thank you for working together with us on these issues. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes, it is. All right, well, good afternoon. It is afternoon right now, so we've had an excellent morning. And uh, actually, if those of you who are here for hearing, in particular, the Norwegian defense minister, I think that this panel is just going to be a perfect, perfect follow-on, because part of her own remarks, she certainly focused in on the importance of the elements of a strategy. And that is, in fact, as you know, uh, the title of, uh, of our session. We are going to be focusing on elements of a new transatlantic strategy. I'm Paula Dobriansky, and I'm on the board of the Atlantic Council. And we have a very prestigious and uh, very engaging panel. Um, we will be hearing uh, from Frank Kramer, who is a distinguished senior fellow here at the uh, Scowcroft Center on International Security. He's also a member of the board and the member of the strategy group. And the other thing I'm going to highlight about you is uh, also the fact that you did serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Uh, for um, uh, President Clinton, you were with Secretary Perry, and you were also with Secretary Cohen. So. Thank you. And then we will be hearing from Dr. Lilia Shetsova. She is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. Uh, I think many of you know her and her writing. She's a prolific writer. Uh, she has, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, co-authored and authored over 20 books. And uh, she also was previously at uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace as a senior associate uh, there and chair of the Russia Domestic Program, a very prolific writer about Russia, which we're going to hear in this uh, mix. And then, of course, uh, Damon Wilson, who's the executive vice president here of um, programs and strategy at the Atlantic Council. 
uh, all of you also uh, certainly know him. Um, he served as the special assistant to the president and also senior director for European affairs at the National Security Council. He had two stints. He was senior director and he also was before that, uh, Director for Central Eastern Europe and North European Affairs. And I also want to mention that he served as a senior advisor to Lord Robertson when he was at uh, NATO. So let's go to um, a very first question, just for all of you, to really look at this question of, does the Atlantic community or transatlantic community, does it need a strategy? Is it lacking a strategy? Frank. Sure. Um, I, I think the answer is, well, it certainly needs a strategy, and I think it's fair to say right now that it has elements of a strategy, but it's lacking an overall strategy. And the reason I would say uh, that is that uh, from what you've heard, for example, from the uh, Norwegian defense minister and others, uh, we're facing new problems, and it takes time to develop a strategy. Uh, I've talked about in the past about the problems, what I've called the geopolitics of resentment. Uh, and it's around the world. Uh, for example, uh, in China, uh, they specifically forbid uh, the teaching of Western values. In the Middle East, you've got uh, violent extremism. Uh, obviously, in Russia, uh, certainly since uh, President Putin, uh, 2007, I believe, a Munich speech, uh, rejecting the West. So we've suddenly had to move from that more positive post-Cold War scenario of the 90s uh, into the, a much more complicated time, and it's not just the 9-11 sets of issues, it's throughout the world. It's not a surprise that it takes time to develop a strategy, but that really is uh, what we need to do. And I think the first place to do it, and that's what this meeting is really all about, is to get the closest allies together, uh, that is the transatlantic allies, to figure out what we can do. That's, that's across the board, that's not just NATO, it's, it's at the first level, I think, uh, so to speak, to reassert the, what I would call the liberal international order, uh, the values that we're in favor of. Uh, there's an economic element, TTIP, uh, there's an information element, and then there's a security slash military element. I think all those needs to be put together. And we're going to come back to NATO specifically with you in a minute, but I think you've laid out the broad elements of certainly what is needed in stepping back and looking of what we're lacking right. or what hasn't uh, been well articulated. Lilia, what about you, your view on this? Uh, are we lacking a grand strategy? Well, grand Paul, uh, Paula, you apparently know already my answer. Well, it would be presumptions on the part of a Russian sitting here at the Atlantic Council to make any comments on NATO especially when you know the mainstream view of the Kremlin on the NATO strategy. strategy. Strategy, NATO strategy has to be bury yourself as soon as possible. But I would say as a Russian liberal, I would say NATO has no strategy in my view. NATO as the institution, maybe the most coherent institution of the, uh, of the West has to have a strategy that will erase any temptation for reckless forces and reckless powers to test where the red line is. Are you satisfied with my answer? <laughs> uh, it is your answer. <laughs> Damon, Damon, what about from where you're sitting? Thanks, Paul. I, I, I think we are lacking of a strategy right now. I think, as Frank said, that there are elements in play, um, but we've sort of have bounced around from perhaps too, uh, too hot 
the American people and, and our allies believe we may have gone too far in the last administration, and we're not there in this administration, and we're grappling around right now. I think um, if you look at the alliance itself, this is a, a sort of a call, and you heard the minister, the Norwegian minister, it's almost a call to action. This is actually the time to take this on because we have had clarity in the past. We've gone through very clear strategies with this alliance that began as one based on contain deterrence of the Soviet threat and containment that moved into a real outreach posture of helping to turn adversaries into allies through engagement and enlargement that became a very operational alliance in a third chapter engaged in operations first in the Balkans and then further afield. And now what? It's very unclear. And what we've seen happen in the wake of uh, the, the shock of what happened in Crimea to most of our political leaders and play out of the last Wales summit was the beginnings of recoiling and saying back to the core, back to deterrence, back to defense is our strategy. That's insufficient. The underlying problems we have right now, which I think have to be addressed uh, as we go forward to Wales, hit at what uh, Frank was saying. NATO itself is the expression of a grand strategy. After war, the devastation of World War II, we set out to build an international liberal democratic order in which our societies could be prosperous and secure based on security arrangements, economic arrangements, and all premised on these values that Frank referred to that underpin that. And right now, we've backed away from that. We actually are not even defenders of that international liberal order we, we built. Um, and I think the, the core of a strategy, which NATO will be embedded in and part of, is going back to how we actually stand by the originating values that brought us together in the first place to, to lay out a durable path forward that, yes, deters, protects our own at home, as, as the minister laid out very clearly, but also has an offense, and an uh, offense not in a, a, a militaristic way, but an advancing of those values because Ultimately, that's the grand strategy for security and prosperity, which was what this alliance was uh, supposed to be about, delivering peace globally. All right. Frank, let's come back to you. Uh, in fact, I do want to feature here. Frank is the co-author of the Atlantic Council's publication. If those of you haven't seen it, it is outside. NATO's new strategy, Stability Generation. Um, if I may quote, you have, NATO must add resilience as a core task to its existing tasks of collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. Uh, drill deeper on this uh, about what is the recommendation of you know, this uh, product, uh, specifically what needs to be done here in terms of NATO. Sure. Thank you, Paul. Um, as Damon said, th this is a NATO strategy. So one of the points in the report is that a NATO strategy really only works if it's built into an overall transatlantic strategy, where Paula started us. Uh, but within that concept, one of the things we also say is that even in the security arena, things have changed. There's a sentence in here to the effect, when war changes, so, much so must defenses. Uh, and one of the things that we've looked at, uh, and I believe those of you who were here earlier this morning heard Fabrice say this, is that it's not that collective defense is not critical, because it is. It's not that crisis management may not be important, because it may be. And it's not that cooperative security is not important, because that's also important. Those are the three tasks that NATO has in its strategic concept. But our recommendation in this report is that NATO really has to add a fourth task. We called it resilience. Uh, and that has multiple elements to it, and I'll, I'll come to it. Uh, we also think that collective defense needs to be increased. We also think that crisis management needs to be increased. But if we don't do resilience, then we're going to find that the alliance is not 
providing the security that it needs. And the other element of that is that we need new institutions because one thing is for sure, resilience is not something that NATO can do alone. We need to have the civil authorities engaged and remarkably enough, uh, we need to have private sector entities engaged. That's perfectly obvious, for example, in the uh, cyber arena. It's uh, true also in other arenas. So we had a series of recommendations uh, both to uh, build on whales, uh, especially with respect to collective defense and hybrid conflict, uh, to create some structural changes uh, in NATO, uh, and to have a strategy that works not only with the military and the intelligence community alike, but also with civil institutions uh, and with the private sector. Uh, we agree uh, with what you've heard, and I suspect all of you uh, have thought yourselves, that there really are several theaters, and we actually identified three, uh, rather than just the sort of the two, the east and the south. One is the east, that's for sure, that's the Russia problem. Uh, the second is the south, uh, writ uh, broad. But the third is the vulnerability of NATO internally to attacks like uh, cyber attacks, as we've seen here in the United States, not just over in Europe, uh, energy type problems, information type problems, and the like. So we think all three need to be dealt with. Uh, with respect to Russia and the East, uh, we think uh, there have, uh, NATO agreed at Wales to have a framework nation approach. We need, think that needs to be expanded. Uh, we think that some of the things there needs to be, I prefer permanent presence. Some people like continuously persistent. I can live with that. Um, but a lot more uh, in the East. Um, Pre-positioning, reception facilities, logistics, infrastructure. Additionally, and you heard the uh, minister, the Norwegian minister, talk about this, I think that NATO needs to develop what uh, I call the maritime framework uh, for the Baltics and also for the high north. Uh, so that would add to the three land-based frameworks uh, that we've had. Uh, in the east, I think it would be good to have a multinational, uh, at least a battalion, uh, including European forces, because it can't just be um, American forces. Uh, I think it'd be invaluable if the North Atlantic Council would authorize a combination of the Secretary General and the SACUR to be able to actually move forces under certain specified conditions at the request of a, uh, an affected nation. And uh, I certainly would love to see Sweden and Finland join the alliance. Uh, until then, uh, and unless and until then, uh, I think we should work with them as closely as possible. Uh, in the Mediterranean, or if you will, in the south, the tricky part here is that unlike the east, where NATO has a, certainly either is in the lead or has a leading role, in the south, it's really nations in the lead. You can see this in the coalition that's operating in Syria and Iraq. You can see that as to uh, what's going on with a lot of uh, other aspects. And so for now, I think NATO needs to say to itself, okay, just like I did in the counter-piracy operations off Somalia, I'm going to play a role, but I have to play it in a larger context. Uh, Italy is supposed to be leading a framework nation approach with respect to stabilization and reconstruction, with respect to humanitarian activities, with respect to counterinsurgency. I think that needs to be plussed up a great deal uh, with respect to NATO. Uh, Turkey, as was mentioned by some of the speakers earlier, uh, needs a lot of support. NATO had put in air defenses. We need to do a lot more things. The Turks have a lot of problems. They are not always the easiest allies in the world to work with, but they are terrific allies, and I think we need to do more. Uh, we need to expand our partnerships with Jordan, the Gulf states, and Egypt. Uh, and if and when 
Montenegro uh, is deemed to have met the criteria, I think it would be invaluable to have them join. We should, this should not be the end of NATO enlargement, and especially for the South if we completed. Uh, I mentioned resilience. Uh, this would take different kinds of things. We think it would be useful to have, um, we made up a name, it doesn't make any difference what you call it, but NATO teams. There are NATO teams now, civil military teams, just small size that focus on cyber. We think starting off with something similar, focusing on resilience, both hybrid warfare, uh, it was already mentioned, you, know, you have information, you have police, you have indications and warning. Uh, some nations can handle this on their own, but some nations need a lot of help. And so if we had these resilience support teams that would be important, they won't work unless they're counterpart national teams. So you have to have both the NATO group and the national group. And then if you can get the European Union to work with NATO, that would be terrific. Uh, but I don't think you can have only the European Union doing it. I think you have to have the national part and the NATO part and the European Union. Um, and then you need to have a group that brings in the relevant civil authorities and private sector. You cannot do cyber without the private sector. It will not work. Um, but it can work. Uh, many of these companies are very willing to do kinds of things, notwithstanding all the sets of issues about privacy and Mr. Snowden and the like. Uh, so we have to go forward. Uh, finally, I think publics need to know more. Uh, so I've suggested that we create an uh, open source center uh, for NATO, focusing first of all on cyber threats, on violent extremism, and, and potentially also on Russia. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, there's the adequate investment that's been mentioned. Uh, there have to be adequate European capabilities. The minister was as clear as she could be. I couldn't support her more. And then lastly, and I think the Libya experience demonstrates this, if you don't have a civil counterpart to a military operation, you're likely to fail. So whether, whenever we, NATO is going to undertake a military operation, there ought to be a civilian counterpart. It could be ad hoc. It could be like a contact group, or it could be the European Union and the U.S. civil authorities. But it needs to be done in, together. So uh, I, you know, it's a long report. I could obviously go on forever, but let me stop there. No, but that's a very good, uh, good overview. And I'm going to go to Damon later, but to talk about how to actually implement that, because that's a rather uh, comprehensive list. And the question is, how does one get from here to there in actually advancing it? But let's, let's discuss Russia a bit. Lilia, uh, let's come back to you on this question about the whole issue about Russia's own view of NATO. As you know, uh, actually, at the time with the illegal annexation of Crimea and no less the aggression into Ukraine, uh, there had been many articles uh, written by different people uh, about why Russia undertook this action. And one of the, action, one of the rationales cited was because of NATO expansion. Um, talk about, uh, does NATO have what kind of meaning does NATO have for Russia in this case? And what do you perceive as Russia's strategy toward NATO? Uh, Paula, uh, you know, the more I'm thinking about NATO in the Russian context, by the way, it's very sobering to hear what you say about Russia. Maybe I will change my views about my country. Well, what I'm hearing about NATO in the Russian context only persuades me that, you know, the Kremlin firstly, doesn't think that NATO is a really serious threat. Secondly, it's very interesting to use the anti-NATO rhetoric while there were all signs that NATO had been fast asleep and lost its drive, stamina, and apparently, you know, became such a 
an obsolete institution like many other institutions, including the EU and Brussels. And uh, I can believe that even you know, the Russian propaganda people and Putin himself, together with our uh, foreign affairs minister, they chuckle every time when they use NATO expansion as the pretext you know, uh, for Russia's dealing with Ukraine. So we have apparently to understand that these guys have a sense of humor. Well, uh, what about the real stuff? If we just unwrap you know, uh, all this imitation, fake stuff that, that so many people in the West are ready to believe. When I was listening to a very respectable guy, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Hegel, when he said that Russia definitely needs a place in Syria, I thought to myself, do we with Andrea Leonov believe that Russia needs to be in Syria, having all these problems? So apparently he's also persuaded by Russians that somehow NATO or the West didn't give Russia an adequate place, okay? And especially 10 years after NATO expansion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, a couple of points, if I may. Please. I, I am very naive about NATO, so uh, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know and don't, don't understand these military angles. But there is one uh, absolutely clear message that the Russian development now uh, sends to the West. And apparently we have to be grateful to President Putin for kicking over the chess, uh, the, the global chessboard, because otherwise such discussions would have been impossible. So in, a, in, a, in effect, he gave a kind, a kind of a waking call. The problem is, and for me, and I'm deliberating on that, whether this call was serious enough for the West and for the Western political and expert community. Uh, well, judging by some of the compet, uh, com, uh, comments, you know, during the, the morning session, it wasn't serious. It wasn't uh, really serious enough. So several things. Firstly, we need to see to understand that the Russian political system is now uh, uh, looking for a new way of survival. And Putin has adopted this new doctrine of survival, shifting Russia into the war paradigm. So now the military patriotic legitimacy is the key argument, the key means to consolidate the society and justify reproduction of the system. And I'm very much afraid that Russia cannot get out you know, of the war paradigm and military patriotic legitimacy back into the peace mode. But on the other hand, we see a conundrum. Well, this is conundrum that you understand, and once we discuss it with you, conundrum is the following. While the system cannot reproduce itself without a war, there are no means in the budget to continue militarization. And uh, ironically, and this is irony, that the elite, the, the elite stupid, the elite being personally integrated, major part of the Russian elite, being personally integrated into Londongrad and all other perfect and nice places, is not ready to turn Russia into North Korea. They're ready to play within the West, you know, shredderization, Londongrad, etc., and insulate Russia from the West. And I'm not, I'm not sure that the society is ready to continue to live, you know, in this kind of zombie-like state demoralized by military uh, propaganda and enemy search. Because only, can you imagine, 25% of the Russian population, you can trust the polls, you cannot trust the polls. Only 25% you know, still believe these military patriotic slogans. And 
only 13% of respondents of Russians now, they're ready to sacrifice for Ukraine, for Syria, for anything else. So Russians do not want any kind of war. They do not want any kind of confrontation with you. So this is a conundrum. On the one hand, the system cannot survive without military thrust. On the other hand, the system and the country are not ready for this kind of uh, the war and uh, confrontation with NATO, with Europe, with whatever world. But there are a couple of more points. Uh, I just am kicking over you know, my, my list of arguments, simply responding and uh, commenting what uh, I, I've heard here. You know, one point on the Western failure, on the Western political failure, on the Western expert failure. Here, the Norwegian defense minister several times mentioned somehow, and senator too, somehow the West and we in NATO have been, you know, uh, caught unawares. Come on, why? Why the Western political community and experts, why you always are caught unawares? You were not prepared in 1991 for collapse of the Soviet Union. In 2010, during the Lisbon summit, you uh, endorsed uh, the strategy for partnership with Russia when Putin already had warned you in Munich, in Munich, mm -hmm. folks, I'm going to whack you down. You believed in Medvedev when you know it was absolutely uh, uh, certain that Medvedev is interlude and simply a fig leaf for Putin. And you know we, you were absolutely unprepared for the, uh, for the Crimean annexation, Anschluss, and the Russian war with Ukraine, when everything already pointed in this direction after the war with Georgia. So what's, what's the problem? Is it, you know, our difference in political mentality, because Putin had been all the way, he had been candid, he had been alerting you. So what's the problem? And what's the, what's the guarantee that you're not going to fail again? Second observation, also connected to, to our previous session, is uh, an observation uh, uh, regarding the, uh, the issue of security. Because, well, I'm not, I'm not so sure that you need you know, all this absolutely perfect fleet of submarines and all these long discussions of maritime whatever and deployment, deployment of the rapid forces in Estonia, etc. There is a much more serious challenge. And this challenge is the Kremlin broad understanding of the security agenda that includes energy war, gas war, trade off, uh, cooptation of the uh, different regimes, forces, and countries. Look at Hungary, look at Czech Republic, look at some other forces in Europe. Uh, moreover, you know, it's not necessary for Russia, for the Kremlin to start uh, uh, invasion of uh, Estonia or Lithuania. Well, it's uh, for, for the time being, uh, they're pretty uh, happy with the successful information war. So while the new, the new uh, uh, strategy of, uh, um, as, uh, of containment the West inside of the Western society. One more, maybe one of the last points, uh, you know, uh, wobbliness of the West. Uh, Paula, you started this conversation whether NATO has strategy or not, uh, uh, or no strategy. But it seems to me, without the West, the Western community, uh, without wobbliness, double standards, without your readiness for broad shreddenization, without US retrenching, or how Obama is leading from behind or from what spot? 
from behind, okay? Uh, with, uh, with paralysis of the Brussels bureaucracy, Trojan, Russian Trojan horses in Europe, hardly Putin would have ever, ever, ever risked this absolutely dangerous for Russia project with Crimea and Ukraine, because uh, nearly majority of the Russian elite was against that. But he risked it because his assumption was the West will stomach it, Germany will agree, and the oil price will be the same. And the final point is, uh, you know, I'm very much afraid that uh, the challenges and threat that we are discussing here, and not only here but in, in other capitals, you know, are minor, uh, teeny tiny, you know, threats that we are going to face in the nearest decade, five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, because the major threat and the major challenge is before us. And this challenge is the obsolete Russian system, the state system, cannot be sustainable within this geographical format, within this paradigm of survival. And sooner or later, you know, the system will start to unravel because society does not want to live within it. Well, of course, uh, it has a lot of patience. It, it is demoralized, but you know, when people are asking Russia, what you would like to have in Russia, great power? They say, yes, Russia has to be a great power. But what kind of great power? And 65% say, we would like to live a normal life. It's not about <laughs> military annexation of any other country. So this is unsustainable. So the moment is approaching. And maybe, you know, the moment is, is approaching sooner than we, than we hope and think that the Russian zombie petrol state half frozen empire will start to unravel and will have the task to build a nation state. It's a kind of looking into the black hole. Russian nationalism, Russian national identity, we don't know how to deal with it yet, but this is the challenge that will have tremendous repercussions in the security field, in the defense area, in the foreign policy area. Are you prepared for that, thinking only about maritime problems and Kaliningrad? It's much broader, it's much more bloody, predatory, exciting. And of course, I would support uh, the, 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 the comment and the slogan and the demand of the previous panels, uh, the West needs leadership. I'm, I'm thinking not only about the US leadership, I'm thinking about restoration of political leadership in the West as a whole and coming to the fore of the leaders who will understand the strategic challenges, who will understand the normative dimension, who will understand, you know, that we are apparently entering absolutely new epoch and leadership that will be ready uh, to erase any kind of temptation or incentive for other powers, just look at illiberal China, look at Iran, not only Russia, for illiberal powers and illiberal forces in reckless states to test where the red line is because you know the illiberal states continue to look for the red lines and they don't see the red lines. Lilia, you and Frank have underscored, I think, in your comments that this is not only about a discussion about a strategy toward NATO. Why I asked the first question is it's more holistic. And I think both of you in different ways certainly have underscored that crucial point. Damon, come, let's come back to the points that Frank put out in the report. I mean, one of the core questions really is how implementable <laughs> is it? 
There is the issue of where we are in the transatlantic relationship. Do we all have the same view of what the challenges are uh, from, uh, from the East and from Putin and from Russia? How can we advance this agenda? What are the kinds of concrete steps that one can take in this? And also, doesn't the moral narrative have an important place in this? We heard the defense minister talk about the importance of credibility, the importance of unity. That was a very recurring theme in her <clears throat> remarks. Thank you, Paula. Let me try to connect uh, both Frank and Lilia's comments here. Um, and first of all, uh, kudos to Frank, who has uh, uh, really worked to lay out um, one of the most thoughtful stamps that I've seen at trying to articulate a real strategy for the alliance as it grapples right now. Um, but I want to start with Lily and come back to that because um, I always respect and enjoy listening to the straightforward, direct talk that we hear from Lilio, knowing that how much uh, conviction and courage it takes for a Russian to stand here and do that. But I, I think it hits at something important to remember, that there has been a change because we had a strategy that incorporated what we were doing with NATO and what we were doing with Russia. This vision, actually beginning with Gorbachev, common European home, George Herbert Walker Bush, Europe whole, free and at peace, which really was premised on an actual vision that was led by three strategies of attaining the strategic partnership, a fundamentally different relationship with Russia first, that then unlocked the process of engagement, outreach to adversaries that started enlargement, and that provided the umbrella for a profoundly deepening of the European integration project. And that worked pretty well for 25 years, and it's broken down and it's broken down because I come back, I actually agree with Lilia. It's broken down, not for external reasons, but for internal reasons, because our counterpart evolved into a more authoritarian kleptocratic regime. And so we've seen Putin replace the social contract that he had of rising living standards, stay out of politics as a source of legitimacy in the absence of democratic expression of that to now, as Lily has so eloquently articulated, putting the country on a war footing, um, a war footing internally to consolidate its hold on power, while having confidence because of what you've called the wobbly, wobbliness of the West, that you can erode and exploit our own uh, weaknesses and divisions so that we are sapped of the political will and we don't invest in the capability to change that game. Um, and so part of the strategy today, and I'll come back to the NATO piece to this, um, but we shouldn't be sending a lifeline to that approach. We should challenge and see if he spins his economy into uh, destruction or backs down. But if you bring this back to Frank's piece and how do you relate these, Frank's responded with his piece because if you look at NATO actually has a strategy written down um, and recognizes that that strategy is out of date. That strategy was premised on some very clear assumptions that the Euro-Atlantic community was at peace and now we have essentially an interstate war in Europe, that Russia was a strategic partner and now Russia's positioning itself as more of an adversary. Um, and if you read the strategic concept, that the Middle East actually played a relatively insignificant minor role and now we see that the turmoil in the region has a direct impact on Europe's security. Um, and finally, a, a strategy that actually I don't think did anticipate the future in terms of the rapid change of technology, the spread of what that means in terms of adversaries being able to close the gap 
with the allies as well as the empowerment of, of more adversaries. And so that brings us back to the strategy we need and where Frank has, has begun to short frame that conversation. Um, and the context is NATO fits into it. It's a broader strategy because what we right ha now have is a, is a Europe, the core of the alliance, that is facing these historic challenges from the east, from Russia, a historic challenge from the south as we watch what, what plays out right now. But probably the most disturbing one is what you both referred to this internal one of who, what Europe is, what our community is, and the values that underpin it that has led to a crisis of confidence um, and this erosion of solidarity. And this is, to put it in action, therefore, it doesn't work for us to let Europe come up with something and play the supporting role. I think this is, the stakes are too high that you, the United States has to be catalytic in this process of forging what is going to be a broader strategy that will inform the, the NATO strategy. Um, and I think that's what's, what's on the table right now, where we have the down payment. We have uh, the whole work stream that began in the wake of Crimea, the Wales Summit, that begins the Protect Our Own, begins the restorations of a strong deterrence strategy. And it's needed, it takes time, Warsaw needs to deliver on that, and I think Frank outlines ways to, to move that forward, uh, including uh, not being wishy-washy about what we have to do, but we have to recognize we have to move the Alliance East, including, uh, uh, I would say, permanent stationing of forces until uh, President Putin changes the sense of posture that we don't worry about that. But we are creating inadvertent consequences because it's an inadequate strategy. We run the risk in the East of, of actually creating a new, um, I've heard uh, our colleagues in the region refer to it as an Article 5 Iron Curtain, um, and that we've made it clear who's in and who's out. We're back to protecting our own. Um, and I think that's, and it, and it was very inadequate in terms of addressing the challenges towards the South, as we've seen essentially unaddressed problems festering in Syria, Iraq, Libya, leading to the crisis in Europe we have today. So that means that the task that the Allied leaders have going forward to Wales is a strategy that actually unites them, that brings them together. How do you integrate East and South, short-term and long-term, into something that's coherent around which you unify the alliance? And the East, that means you've got to be able to deal with Russia in the short-term, hybrid. Um, in the South, it means the instability of these states, crumbling of nation states in, in terms of sources of terrorism and migration. Um, but it also means over the long term, the fundamental change of global power structure, the rise of Asia Pacific and, and techno technological changes. And I think it has to be a strategy that therefore then begins to communicate clearly to the adversaries and potential adversaries while aligning the allies into how they fit into it and how they contribute to it and how it actually is a source of solidarity. Um, and this is where I think the minister began to hit on it because I think it is this deterrence role um, the capability to invest and develop these capabilities to move east, um, and not just deter, but to show that you can defeat an adversary. We're sometimes worried of, of saying that. But at the same time, recognizing and not abandoning, what I felt Wales did was abandon where we had come in alliance strategy, that we understood that we had to go to where threats might originate if we're going to protect our security. It's not sufficient just to protect our own. I think we have to now combine the emphasis on deter deterrence with that projection. And that's the projection of going back and understanding that we have to advance this international liberal order in which we're invested, beginning closer to home, 
It's why things like integrating the Western Balkans and Europe's east uh, uh, matter, um, avoiding a, a, a gray zone of instability um, uh, in the region and keeping open the prospect of a different relationship with Russia. It puts a real emphasis on the South. And so bringing together a NATO strategy that focuses on capacity building, defense capacity building, and some of the resilient strategies that Frank talked about, not just for the allies, but for key partners in the East, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, but also in the South, key partners in the South, um, and stays connected to where we were beginning to go with the alliance and thinking about its global partnership strategy, keeping the alliance at the heart of what is a broader strategy that the United States is helping to develop on security, prosperity, and the values base of linking what we have globally to anchor this international liberal order. I have another question for them, but I want to come to all of you so we have engagement here. So be thinking of your, your questions. I want to pick up on, on this point that also you know, comes out in each of your comments. And that is, and you, I think, hit it most directly, Lilia, and that is, all right, we, we need to have unity. There's a challenge. And we've had history in terms of the engagement of Russia in the context of, of NATO. The question is where we are now. How do you engage Russia in this? Are there certain issues which were being discussed earlier, in fact, by uh, former uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Hagel, where he was stating uh, that there are some issues where Russia has to be engaged? Let's go and see here your views. Let's begin backwards. Uh, Damon, with you, and then let's come down, and then we're going to go to the audience. So this has been the issue. And, uh, you know, what's the deal with Russia? How do you bring stability to Europe and Europe's east, and how do you work with Russia? The problem right now is we're trying to seek a deal when we haven't actually exerted sufficient pressure to bring our interests together where there is a, fe a feasible deal. The terms of the deal right now essentially mean if the United States is going to back up Europe and the crisis in the East, it means we're going to have to sacrifice some fundamental principles and sacrifice some of the partners in the East. I don't think that's the engagement, that's the deal we want. I think to get to a stage where we actually can come to some greater stability, the heat has to go up and that, that has to be felt in Moscow. So it has to be not the uncertainty about how we're handling um, uh, the economic side or the sanctions, but clarity and continuing that, doubling down on that. It has to be clear that we're not worried about provoking Russia by doing what's normal, by being at strength in the high north or standing by Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova's ability to be sovereign countries. But we actually develop a very clear deterrent strategy, which helps build the allies in the east, helps build the deterrent capability of Sweden, Finland, and yes, helps build those capabilities in uh, the eastern partners. Um, in a way that as we work on energy, on trade, on the political issues, that it becomes quite clear that the current pathway that President Putin has put his country on is one that he can't sustain financially, afford politically, to come back to an ability to be able to engage Putin more constructively. Right now, Putin's engagement with us is meant to be disruptive. His engagement on these issues, whether it be Syria, whatever, is not about Syria. It is about disrupting our interests and disrupting the United States. And so I think we haven't set the terms of the table right to actually be able to get out and, and achieve our interest in engaging Putin yet because he hasn't felt enough pressure. Okay, Lillian. Uh, I would agree, I would agree with Damon. He put it much uh, tougher than I would apparently have done. Uh, I will add one footnote to what you have said. It seems to me that 
Firstly, if we are dealing with strategic interests and outlooks and agendas, they are irreconcilable, irreconcilable between the Russian system and the West. At the moment, no uh, possibility to bridge the gap. But at the same time, if we go down a bit lower to the tactical interests, uh, uh, Afghanistan still, you know, narco-traffic, well, uh, even, you know, well, nuclear, nukes, okay, well, Kind even terrorism Iran, was another one uh, energy security, et cetera. So tactically, there are points of coincidence and there are points for trade-offs. The problem is that the Kremlin has been much more astute, apparently, much more skillful in putting the common agenda into the transactional area. For every tactical common interest, Afghanistan, etc., transit rule, the Kremlin will be asking a trade-off, a bargain, okay, reciprocity. We helped you with Iran, Mr. Obama, aren't we? So you have to give us reciprocity, whether it's Ukraine or something else. So how you folks are going to deal with reciprocity issue? That's the problem. Because so far, any dual track policy Damon, I hope that you will agree me and support me. Dual track, you know, firstly, you know, uh, uh, deterring each other and then cooperating. It was used much more skillfully by the Kremlin. Is it the problem of uh, Kremlin's skillful tactical toolkit or maybe lack of your principles? I still don't know. Okay, Frank. I think uh, we ought to start by saying to ourselves, what kind of Russia do we want? And then be clear that we don't like the kind we have. Um, <laughs> But we've got it. We've got it. No, I understand that. But we need to say we would like to see Russia change internally. The Russians will have to do that themselves. We're not going to do it. But that was actually our position in the Cold War, and we ought to stand fast with it with respect to, again, I call it the liberal world order. But, um, and we ought to be clear about that. The second point we ought to have clear is that it, Russia, uh, although it has some strengths, is really only one country among many, and it's not nearly as powerful as the United States, period, but certainly no near, not nearly as powerful as the United States and our transatlantic allies combined. So it's fine to have Russia as part of a coalition, but it's not a one-to-one -one relationship, no matter how much they want it. Uh, the third point uh, is that there's some things that we need to reduce vulnerabilities on. Um, we're foolish to let ourselves be at the, uh, maybe mercy is not quite the right word, but in any event, uh, uh, with the Russians having their thumb on the scales. So that's certainly true with energy. Uh, the Europeans have been better on this recently, but we need to be a lot better. Uh, it's certainly true with cyber. It's For most people, that's a black box, but we need to do a lot more in that arena. Uh, it's certainly true with uh, information. Um, RT, as many of you know, uh, is a uh, very effective uh, tool. Uh, we need to be thinking about how to deal with those kinds of issues. Um, and we need to say that when uh, sometimes, uh, I have enormous admiration, I must say, for uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, and I ha always hesitate to disagree with her, but I think sometimes military is p part of the solution. You can't just say, as she sometimes have said, it's not a, there's no military solution. Well, I don't think that's always right. Uh, and I think with respect to Russia, and particularly with respect to Ukraine, that there's a military element. Uh, this council, I was not part of the group, but this council put out a report uh, recommending uh, providing weaponry and the like to mm -hmm. the Ukraine government. I don't think you actually provide weapons without providing a much broader help on Ministry of Defense, uh, uh, 
institution building, how do you actually do weapons, training, et cetera, et cetera. But in broad terms, I think we need to just step up uh, and we need to confront sometimes and take the risks of confronting. So for me, uh, I quite agree uh, with Lilia that there are, uh, if you want to call them tactical or specific things maybe, they're not, you know, they're not minor. Uh, Counterterrorism, which I've heard Paul say. Yeah. Uh, we have some overlapping interests and we ought to deal with those and we ought to say, okay, that's, that's exactly what we're gonna do. Uh, but we don't have to say that there's a moral equivalency and we don't have to say we're not gonna block them and try to you know, set the circumstances so they change themselves. And we don't have to say that they're an equal partner in all the activities that we do, although they can be part of a useful coalition. All right, let's go to you. Questions, comments, let's go right here. Uh, we have, if you have the mic, and if you would introduce yourself, your name and your affiliation, please. Right here in front, thank you. Hello, um, thank you for being here. My name is Satine. I'm from the University of Utah. I'm currently an intern with the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, my question is a complicated one, and I'm going to struggle to ask it. Um, so it's regarding the Iran deal. So there's, I have two parts to my question. One, what do you think is the role of Russia? What do you think the role of Russia is going to be in the future? I know this obviously has a lot of moving parts to it. Um, and then the second part is, do you think that the Iran is looked as a potential for um, an ally for the United States in a very complicated way when it comes to ISIL. Iran, I mean, ISIS is a common enemy between the United States and Iran. Um, and do you think that while we can't advertise it on the books, that's what we're trying to do, that that is, and are we trying to buy out an ally in the Middle East? Okay, just to make sure everybody heard, and I think, Lilia, it's uh, in a way for you, the question was, first, what we can expect from Russia relative to the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Um, and I think this fits in in this whole question of strategy and what our strategy is, not only in area but also out of area. And then you also had asked uh, the question specifically about the collaboration, uh, particularly in the uh, counterterrorism area, and she focused on ISIL. And should we be collaborating with the Russians in, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis ISIL? Maybe before you mm -hmm. answer that, let's get one more question, if we could. Yes, we got one right up here. Sorry, the mic's there. And if you'll introduce yourself, and um, we'll take uh, My name is Bob Beecroft with the State Department Office of the Inspector General. Very uh, quick add-on among the things that has not been mentioned in terms of U.S.-Russian cooperation now is space. We're still hitching rides on Russian rockets to get to the space station, which is co-manned by Americans and Russians. How does that fit in? And nuclear okay. waste, too. Okay. Well, yeah. let's, let's take a moment on, on these. Lilia, do you want very to... Briefly, very briefly. Of course, I am not an expert in the area, and only a person that knows Iranian-Russian relationship would respond to you. But my naive and maybe humble view on that is the following. Moscow, a country to anticipations of many in Moscow, supported the Iranian deal. But supported Iranian deal apparently having uh, some kind of hope for reciprocity from Obama. And Putin, by the way, laid out uh, this uh, hope for reciprocity. The next day, the Iranian deal was, was, was signed. So we anticipate from the United States some uh, you know, soft position on other issues. And uh, secondly, it seems to me that Moscow has done a lot to soften the pill for Iranians in the area of arms uh, uh, sales and many other issues. Despite of the fact that there is a kind of very strange and maybe, uh, well, dangerous 
uh, uh, threat and challenge for Russia if Iran goes into the oil, uh, into the uh, area of uh, oil trade, uh, what it would mean for the, uh, for the oil price for Russia. That's really a very serious thing. Okay. Any other comments on that or we'll move on? Any, any comments on space? Nope. Okay. Let's move on. We have right here uh, this and we'll take, uh, I think yours. Let's, we're going to get two questions. Yes. And we're going to go to the back. And Andrea Larian of Gate Institute, two questions. One uh, to Mr. Kramer. I apologize. Who, who did you say you are? Andrea Larian of Gate Institute. Thank you. Okay. Uh, sure. You mentioned that you would consider that Russia should take uh, care of itself and just would do domestic work. Would you expect the same result from Germans in 1939 and 1940 without help of Americans? Would you expect the same from Italians in the same year or from Japanese in the same year? What results would be of these expectations? And may I ask Lily Yu, uh, would you share your views about uh, thinking in Kremlin from expectations of meeting between Mr. Obama and Mr. Putin next week. Oh, how oh, the last part. The I mean, question just, was uh, about whether they in the how the Kremlin would, would consider this expected meeting between ah. Mr. Obama and Mr. Putin, and uh. these comments of Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Merkel, that who's, who, has, who has been mentioned uh, when she said that okay, she's looking forward for cooperating with Mr. Assad, and so on. Okay, and let's give the mic to the gentleman over here. We're going to get two questions. Oh, you got one. Yeah, right. uh, hi, Michael Soda from the Embassy of the Czech Republic. I got a question for Frank. I quickly went through your paper, and uh, you recommend there, among others, to um, encourage Finland and Sweden to join NATO, to offer membership to Montenegro. But I wonder why you don't mention Georgia at all, when Georgia was the only out of these you know, four countries uh, uh, that, that has been promised uh, the membership in 2008. Uh, no, currently, there are the best prepared nation out of the four candidate nations. Why do uh, you don't recommend, uh, you know, membership of Georgia? You know, and it seems to me if we uh, keep Georgia out of the membership track, we send a clear signal to Mr. Putin: if you don't want any of your neighbors joining NATO, please attack it, and then it's out of the membership track. Right. I, I don't think that the, the signal would be uh, good to <laughs> send right. to Mr. Putin. Point. Thanks. Let's get his uh, answer. Frank, do, why don't we're going to work backwards? We're going to go here first, then to yours. Um, the question just about Georgia. Sure. So uh, there are two ways to answer that. The first is that uh, one of the principles that uh, we've thought about with respect to the alliance is when you have someone joined, you want to bring in an internal conflict right into the alliance, and Georgia obviously brings that conflict right in. Um, the second point is whether or not you could actually get support. Um, with respect to Sweden, Finland, and I think Montenegro, there'll be support. Uh, with respect to Georgia, you probably would have an incredible split in the alliance. Um, I think that the alliance, it's, it's a little bit like what Winston Churchill said about the United States. It always does the right thing after it's tried everything else, right? Um, the alliance takes a long time to get to its positions. Um, the French, for example, were just a little while ago still selling the Mistrals or thinking about selling the Mistrals to Russia, and then they finally decided not to. I think that was the right decision. Uh, I think that we need to do a lot with Georgia, and it may well, <coughs> excuse me, may well be that they 
should become a member, but frankly, I don't think the Alliance is ready to have them be a member. Okay, Lilia, would you like to take uh, the other? Yes, uh, Andre, apparently I'm with you on the same page uh, regarding Putin and Obama. Well, firstly, the fact that apparently, most possibly, the meeting will take place on the margins of the United Nations General Assembly will mean that blackmailing the West and blackmailing of the United States, forcing Washington to accept the Russia's trade-off on the Russia's terms has succeeded. And it apparently will have an influence and repercussions on the Western position regarding Ukraine and maybe some other issues as well. So it's working. It's a tactical victory of Mr. Putin. I'm not sure that Washington understands it at the moment, but it will be a Pyrrhic victory too. Okay. Just a couple of quick points. Please. Um, just to pick up some of the previous ones as well. First of all, I don't think under any illusion we can talk about Iran as an ally. We need to recognize actually the, the clear and present danger that will continue. Um, which we've been, even as we try to manage the nuclear program. And so going down that path is, is uh, I think, very risky. Um, on the Russia and even in the space issue, I mean, our goal is not to drive Russia from the global community and break its linkages. And we actually don't want a Russian economy that can be an autocracy that is protected from the world. We, our whole premise was to welcome and allow for those linkages of integration. The problem is we've let some of those linkages begin to sap and undermine um, our approach, our values, uh, and our principles, which is, has got it back, backwards. So in the specific issues, we've got to focus not on just breaking, we don't want to break connections, we want to mitigate our dependency with alternatives so that we're never, over, we're never overly dependent. And then I just add a word on Georgia. I think this is a, a, a tough issue of credibility for the, um, for the alliance. And uh, we're running too much of a pattern of things that the alliance has, has said or done just not looking credible. And I think that's hitting at the challenge that Putin has posed uh, to hit at the strike at the heart of the alliance. If you can really raise questions about alliance decisions here and there, you begin to raise alliance questions about Article 5. And that, that's a slippery slope. I think there's a need to get this right. We won't get Georgia and NATO right until we actually have a coherent strategy for Europe's east and one in which the United States plays a significant role because the gap in the area is going to be security. Okay, I think we had a few hands in the back. Uh, yes, yours, and we will come up front again in the green sweater there, and then we'll catch the gentleman over on the side. Yes, the green sweater, right. Hi, my name is Michael Overton from the George Washington University. Um, I know, Mr. Kramer, you were talking about the idea of... Um, the Russia that we want to see. Have we failed since Georgia to signal our intentions if Russia kind of doesn't meet our expectations or doesn't live up to our hopes? Have we been failing in our response to Ukraine? Have, do we have a lot more room to make up for in this new coming strategy that we're coming up with in Warsaw? Okay, thank you. And if you'll pass the mic over to the end here. Yes, the gentleman here. Uh, You'll introduce yourself. Hi, Ira Strauss, Committee on Eastern Europe and Russia and NATO. Uh, one of those interesting things in philosophy is when there's an undefined term, strategy. Uh, and I think Lily, as a philosopher, would appreciate, I will define strategy if I may. Strategy is the active part of a perspective. Perspective is a view of past, who we are, where we come from, where we're going to, where we should. Strategy tries to fill the gaps, unite where we are going to where we want to be going. 
and fulfill who we are. If that's a reasonable definition, I think we have inadequacies both in our perspective of the past, who we are. The Atlantic Alliance didn't begin in 1949, it began in 1917 with roots in the Anglo-American rapprochement and gaps in our perspective of the future, where we want to go, how to get there. Uh, and I want to be brief, but I do want to remind you the perspective of the Atlantic Alliance is there is an objective Atlantic unipolarity in the world if we consolidate the Atlantic countries to a common foreign policy and strategy for the long term. This unipolarity will be manifest. Countries will be attracted to it. The Atlantic will be able to expand. This dates back to the late 19th century. Theodore Achilles, the founder of this institution here, the Atlantic Council, shared that perspective. He got it from his predecessors. He developed it in the interwar years, not just in the Cold War era. The for the future, could, I, could I just suggest, I'd suggest three gaps for the future. One, a loss of belief in the objective unipolarity. I think it's a false loss of belief, but clearly, Neither the right, which believes in American unilateralism, believes in Atlantic unipolarity, nor the left, which wants to be rid of Western unipolarity. Uh, second, uh, a lack of a sense of attraction of country to this as a long-term evolutionary strategy, a belief that we have to impose our values without double standards everywhere, including the Middle East, which had catastrophic consequences for the long-term success of our values and convinces people that we could be clinically and insane. The and the third is then the prospect of attracting Russia back in this generation, not just 100 years in the future, to wish to become a part of the Western world, which okay. it did in the late 80s Let, or early 90s. Their, let's hear their comments. Okay, so we had two questions. We have the first one, which was directed to you, uh, Frank, and then we have the other uh, uh, point uh, made. Frank, right. you want to take the first one? Sure. So uh, you know, have we failed with respect to Russia and with respect to Ukraine? No, I think the people who have failed are the Russians and the Ukrainians. Uh, Ukraine had a it could best be described as a, f a failure of governance internally. That's probably the polite way to put it. Uh, and the Russians chose their own course. Um, they chose to uh, use the words I had used earlier to present the West, present the Western values. Uh, there was nothing done to them. Uh, they, they put NATO on the top of their security concerns. Uh, as Lilia says, that you, you've got to have a sense of humor in geopolitics, and I, I couldn't agree more. But it was their decision to, to, to do that. Uh, in fact, in the 90s, uh, while the West was not particularly helpful to Russia, it wasn't anti-Russia. It was the Russians who failed themselves. Um, and if I can just say a word about the, the second question, um, I don't think we need to apologize for being in favor of what I call the liberal world order. Um, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, 1947, and the like sort of gets at that sense. If it was up for vote again this, uh, today, it wouldn't get a lot of countries, but I think that is what we stand for. And there are a number of countries, uh, you know, Korea, uh, difference between the Republic of Korea in 1953 and what it is now. Um, it used to be an autocracy, militaristic autocracy, it's now a democracy. Uh, obviously, Japan, which was mentioned, uh, changed. Germany uh, changed uh, definitively. Um, I think we you know, want that kind of change. How you bring it about, as I said, I think you have to let the people of the country bring it about, but you can create an international environment that encourages it. 
We're winding down. Do you Sorry. want to make a quick comment on, on this, uh, both of you? Go ahead, Damon. Two and quick then, ones. Go Just, ahead. I think the nexus uh, between Syria and Ukraine is quite interesting in terms of failing to signal. I think in part our mishandling of Syria helped maybe help Moscow imagine that it could actually get away with what it's trying to do in Ukraine. And interestingly enough, right now what I think is playing out is that um, Syria in some respects and the Russian gamut there is allowing Moscow to actually tamp down in Ukraine a little bit. Um, the costs that the Russians are paying on Ukraine are real, and I think they feel that. Uh, and in many respects, I think they may have concluded that they can get what they want, um, a Ukraine that won't be embraced by the West, that will have a permanent frozen conflict, um, and are now interested in sort of tam tamping down in a way that they might be able to get out under from some of the economic pressure. And yet, since Putin has premised to, built his legitimacy at home based on the Russian strength abroad, I think the Syria gambit now comes in to dominate that attention and fill that, that, that role and that presence and potential void uh, at home domestically for, for Mr. Putin. Um, and just the quick reaction to this, I actually think the idea of imposing values is anathema to the system that um, we aspire to and the system that we've helped to build because the power of the United States and the power of our alliance is that it has been historically one a power of attraction and not one of coercion and intimidation. In that sense, quite a contrast with Mr. Putin's strategy today. And I think that's really compelling. And no matter even the challenges that Europe is facing today in the midst of the greatest migration and refugee movement because of turmoil since World War II, they're headed to Europe. It is the power of attraction of the principles that underpin this core political community and one that are, ones that are uh, embraced in a UN declaration as being universal. And I think that's actually the force multiplier for our influence and power. And the idea of imposing that as part of this strategy is anathema to what it represents. I'm going to give Lilia, you'll get the final word because we've now exceeded our time. So you get the final closing well, comments. I, 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 will, I will give only the final sentence. <laughs> I would say that you folks have a powerful instrument of influencing Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, and the post-Soviet space if you practice what you preach. Short enough. <laughs> Amen. Please Amen. give them a Amen. hand. <laughs> Yeah, likewise. Stay a minute because we have Barry Pavel coming up and we're going to stay up here for a moment while he closes us. <laughs> great. Uh, well, just real quick, that was a great panel. Um, I know I'm the only one between you and a networking lunch, so I will be very brief. Just a couple of thank yous and closing thoughts. First of all, uh, a huge thanks to Minister Sarida and Secretary Hagel and, and a really super set of panelists. Um, for their insights and for really raising the caliber of discussion on NATO um, in, in a way that I think is extremely helpful as, as the community moves towards the Warsaw Summit next summer. Um, also, uh, gratitude from us to our uh, partners, the Norwegian Ministry of Defense, for um, the partnership we have with them on a multi-year project. Uh, we're very proud to kick off this important discussion this fall on NATO and the Warsaw Summit in Washington. We heard from this panel, from the previous panels, how the threat landscape and the challenge landscape is really unprecedented, making the next summit for NATO a really critical one. And as Minister Sarida said, even as the challenges are multiplying 21 out of 28 NATO 
countries are spending less in 2014 than in 2008 on defense, a very worrying trend in light of all, all that you heard today um, and also amplified by the political strains from the refugee crisis and other, other factors. Given all of this, um, uh, and certainly the A2A issues, I think the Minister Sarita's point about the need for a long-term strategy to outline and frame our policy suggestions is really critical, and I think the report that Frank Kramer just relate, released is very, very useful for advancing that agenda for helping NATO uh, define a strategy, which was also reinforced by uh, Fabrice Pothier on the first panel, um, a NATO official. So the Atlantic Council, you'll see, is embarking on a pretty ambitious program between now and the Warsaw Summit. This is today's step. You'll see many more. Uh, uh, and that will focus on uh, very similar issues, policies, and strategy. In fact, we're very proud to say that we are now officially part of NATO's um, official public diplomacy efforts with the Warsaw Summit, which will include programming here in Washington, but also key European capitals, and at the summit itself uh, next year in Warsaw. So please stay tuned, please stay in touch uh, as this conversation continues. And with that, my final thanks is to all of you for your excellent questions and for your continued engagement. Thanks very much.